Hey, this is Matt Markin, and welcome to another episode of the Adventures in Advising podcast. Thank you for listening and supporting this podcast. Each episode, we strive to bring together the global academic advising community to share knowledge, best practices, and of course, advising stories. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Advising Podcast. Without further ado, here's the latest episode, and as always, keep advising. Hello and welcome to episode 34 of Adventures in Advising. Our biggest episode of the year so far celebrates Nakata's Global Advising Week. That's right. Greetings and salutations. This is our WrestleMania-sized episode, if you will. That really highlights the commitment we all share with furthering academic advising. But before we go any further, here's some cool updates regarding the podcast. First, we've expanded and have a YouTube channel now. You can find it under Adventures in Advising. You'll find some of our more recent interviews, as well as videos on advising philosophies, book reviews, why you should attend conferences, and so much more. And there'll be new content added weekly. So head on over to that YouTube channel of ours and subscribe, again, under Adventures in Advising. And second, we have a podcast t-shirt we've designed that we're calling our Sharing Stories t-shirt. And to celebrate, we're giving away three of these shirts that we will do an opportunity drawing for on our June 7th episode. So to enter, we have a quick survey, probably takes a minute to do, and you can find the link in our show notes, and we will also be posting the link later in the week on our social media, including on YouTube. So fill out that survey, enter for a chance to win. It'll be a lot of fun. Now back to our regular programming. So if you have not heard about Global Advising Week, how would you describe it? It's an opportunity to recognize and champion the work of advisors, tutors, personal tutors, counselors, and coaches who advise students around the globe. It takes place during the first week in May every year, and alongside NACADA, it's co-sponsored by UCAT, LVSA, and ELETSA. There's a host of events happening throughout the week and across different time zones. You can find more information on the NACADA website, and there's also a link in the show notes. All right. So our first interview of this episode is with Dr. Melinda Anderson from Elizabeth City State College. And just a heads up that this interview was recorded in mid-April, just days before Dr. Anderson was named the new executive director of NACADA. So we had a chat about various topics, including at the time, Dr. Anderson being the incoming Nakata president. So we did a follow-up chat regarding being the new executive director and what exactly that means for the position of Nakata president. And that will follow the first interview. So here we go. We have Dr. Melinda J. Anderson, who has worked in higher education for over 19 years with various roles in both academic and student affairs. Her passion and commitment to student success has propelled her to operate in many different capacities with a focus on student transitions, persistence, and retention. Prior to her current appointment as Interim Associate Vice Chancellor for Student Success at Elizabeth City State University, she was the Associate Dean of Undergraduate Studies and the Director of the University College at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Dr. Anderson currently serves on the Board of Directors for NACADA, the Global Community for Academic Advising, and is the president-elect. Dr. Anderson graduated from Virginia Commonwealth University with a bachelor's degree in mass communication and a master's in adult education. She earned her doctorate in higher education administration from the College of William & Mary. 
She's originally from Northern Virginia and currently lives with her husband, Chris, and two amazing children, Ashley and Caleb, in Chesapeake, Virginia. Dr. Anderson, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you, guys. This is so awesome. Thank you so much for inviting me. I can't wait for today's conversation. Well, we can't wait either. You mean Matt just went through your bio, talk about accomplished. We can hear, you know, your passion for supporting students shine through in your bio. And I know we're going to get into that in your interview. We always like to give our listeners an opportunity to get to know you and your path into higher ed a little bit better to explain where you, you know, how you got to where you are today. So could you talk to us a little bit about that, about your path into higher ed? Sure. Well, you know, it's one of those interesting stories that I love to share with my students because they often say, you know, I didn't know higher education was a career path. And I respond, me either. You know, when I was in um, when I was in my bachelor's degree program, I thought I was going to be the next Oprah Winfrey. Okay, I was mass communications, you know, I was I had my own radio show, I was interested in maybe being in television. And then I realized I was a better producer than I was on air talent. And, um, and I just, you know, really love being a peer advisor in our mass comm program. And my academic advisor at the time, she said, you know, well, if you really like what I do so much, you can get a master's degree and, and do this. And I said, do what? And she said, advising. And I said, are you serious? Like I could be in college forever. And she was like, yeah, you can. And I was just over the moon with this idea or the concept, right, of helping students find their their pathway in life. Because that's what I was doing as a peer advisor. Um, people were always asking me, should it be public relations or should I do mass communications or should I do advertising? Should it be strategic or should it be, you know, um, design? And so I always found myself really wanting to always help students kind of clarify which direction they wanted to go. And so that was kind of my entry. You know, um, my first job out of college actually was <laughs> it was a web designer. I worked for the Marine Corps. And, uh, you know, I was in Quantico and I just was in front of the tele, I mean, the computer screen all the time. And I really missed people. And so I did decide to pursue the master's degree. And then my first job was in student activities, um, which is very different, right, from being around the Marine Corps with all that discipline around me to, you know, uh, 18-year-olds who were trying to figure it out, right? And I'm not too much older than them, right, at this point. You know, I mean, I'm probably uh 23 um 24 at the time in graduate school but i learned so much about um because i always tell people that i really you know i i feel as if i was you know born in student affairs and i grew up in academic affairs so i stayed in um student activities and then i worked at the community college and that's when i was introduced to this um idea of student leadership development and broad um, academic advising support, you know, the idea of a one-stop shop model. I don't know if either of you have ever worked in a community college system, um, but just really wanting to, um, you know, you wear so many hats, you know, I was just a blessing to, to be a part of many different aspects of the community college system. Um, and then I worked in Res Life, you know, which I'm telling you right now that anybody who works in higher ed has been one month 
in a residence hall. Have you guys worked in, in residence life? I have not, but we've had guests and I've had colleagues that have worked at Res Life and they they like th- that they had the experience in Res Life, but they are glad they don't work in Res Life anymore and they're and they're not on the 24-7 clock. Yes. Yes, Matt, you've summed that up beautifully. Look, I I was I was in Res Life. I didn't live on um but I had a hall of a thousand uh, freshmen and sophomores and it was in the old building that I went, you know, that I lived in when I was at VCU. So it was kind of surreal. I was like, oh my God, I was here as a sophomore. And then here I am managing this all just like a couple years later. And you learn so much and all, shout out to like my higher ed nerds, Chickering, right? The seven vectors. OMG. It is a Petri dish. You are watching student development happen in front of your eyes but what I loved about students, which I still love about students, is that, you know, you're watching them come into themselves. And from an academic advising perspective, you're still working with students in their lives, but it's just one particular aspect of their lives. I think res life, it was like their whole life. You know, I mean, they showed up. It was everything. And you were like, oh, please put that back inside the box. But when you're in academic advising, sometimes their whole life comes out, right? You know, sometimes it's, it's tragedy. Sometimes, you know, they're, they're dealing with death and grief. Um, or, you know, they're dealing with mental health issues. Um, but what I like about the work that we do in terms of student success, you know, I'm dealing with all of that. And I really do feel like my my growing up in student affairs has really helped me keep my humanity. It's helped me keep my heart in terms of the work that I do with students. Crisis management, nothing moves me after you've done a couple of years in uh, around that lap of uh, residential life and housing. Um, But I think at the same time, it really does help me build really key partnerships across campus because my colleagues understand that I know where they're coming from. But like I think um, from an academic advising perspective and the work that we're doing, especially in celebrating this, you know, this global academic advising week, it's just about uh, community building. You know, I think that that's probably the thing when I think about higher education the most is that we're just such a very unique community in industry. Like we're an educational business. I know we're a business, Matt and Colm. I know we're a business, right? I know that we say that we're nonprofit, but we still charge tuition and people talk about how expensive higher education is. But there is something when you walk on a campus and you see people reading and you see the thoughts and the ideas and people challenging and wanting to grow and become their best selves, you know, just still something that that captures my heart in that way. And so I just know that I am meant to work in this industry. I'm, I'm aligned. My values are aligned with helping people become their best self. And so that would be I know that was way more than what you asked for when you asked me that question about my intersections into higher education. But that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> No, we think that's great. I mean, it's it's always nice. It's always fascinating to hear everyone's stories and and kind of their journey into advising. I will say that I don't think I want to work a month in Res Life. I'll just live through the experiences of the people I know to know that I don't want to do it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> now, over a year ago, there was a series of videos posted on SUNY New Pulse's YouTube channel where you were asked you know, various questions like how you define advising as teaching. And in it, you mentioned how it's about how we are transitioning or transmitting learning in a way that a student is walking away changed. And so like, let's say an advisor department head was like, 
Dr. Anderson, how do we implement an advising as teaching approach? How would you define that? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game wherever you podcast. Well, you know, you guys are doing really good research. Actually, that was a wonderful campus visit. How would I implement advising as teaching? Well, you know, when we start talking about, well, let's start here. Just the concept of advising as teaching is it should not be foreign to anybody if you're talking about this concept of how do you how are you transmitting an idea or a concept to, to anybody who is trying to understand um their 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 identity or the way that they're trying to absorb knowledge about a particular uh, subject or something that is new, right? And so when I work with faculty or if I'm working with professional advisors, the, the concept around advising is teaching is the idea that you're transmitting new knowledge and, and how are you transmitting that in a way that they're coming away changed. So, for example, when I am going over curriculum with students, I'm not merely just giving them information to say that I did it, right? It's not a checkbox. So very similar to the way that a teacher would look at their classroom as saying, I'm giving you this information because there's a particular outcome that I want you to meet. What I'm talking about, the goals of advising, is because I'm wanting you to transform, I see so many students who say, I'm not sure why I'm here. And now what is my purpose for coming to college? I'm not sure if it's psychology or sociology. So instead of just telling you what's in the major, I'm going to ask you, why do you feel as if these two things are interchangeable, right? I'm going to challenge you a little bit on what is your belief system in terms of why you are um, undecided in this particular way or this manner. And when I think about the concept of what we do as advisors, I don't feel like that's anything different than what faculty are doing in their classrooms when they're trying to help students understand or evolve. Um, And so when I think about what our books are, yes, it's a bulletin or maybe it's a catalog or 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 maybe it is helping them understand the particular outcomes of a syllabus. But I think in terms of the the process of learning isn't anything different. And so that's what I really try to help people understand that that those foundational pieces aren't really different. Like maybe what we're talking about may be different. But ultimately, when I think about advising the academic advising process or any kind of counseling process, it really is this idea of transmitting information so that somebody comes away changed or different. When people leave me, I don't want them to leave me saying, I felt like I wasted my time. You know, if there was anything that they would have left me, it's that they have more information than when they came or they have different questions than when they came. Then that way, at least I know that I've done my job. Yeah, I think that's a a very lovely way of putting it. Um, I am somebody who worked in Res Life early in my career, and I can say that as a result, I am never shocked 
I, though working in higher ed, I think we all remain, you know, frequently surprised because it's it, ever changing. But having worked in res life uh, for a, a summer, yeah, ne never shocked anymore. But following on from what you were talking about in Matt's question uh, and digging a little bit more into the research that, that we do, you wrote a piece, um, Technology and an Academic Advising, a Case for Embracing Change with uh, Zachary Underwood. And that was a few years ago. I'm just wondering, um, you know, a few three years on, having been through, you know, through a pandemic, still going through a pandemic, but hopefully coming out, you know, the other side of it. Um, in terms of technology and academic advising, what are your thoughts today? Wow. Look, you know, I'm so glad that you embraced that question because I was thinking when you mentioned that article, I remember Zach and I thinking that we were doing something because we were trying to get, you know, a new case management technology adopted on our campus. And so we were like, yeah, you know, changing technology and, you know, people shifting the way that we work and the way that you are on your desk in terms of managing this technology in terms of the work, way you work with students. But when you think about the way the pandemic really leveled the way that we think about interacting with um our students, the way that we interact with our faculty, it has really shifted. You know how we always talk about moving people's cheese? Look, Matt and Colin, it threw it across the room, okay? There was no moving cheese. Like, it was just completely you just tossed. So I would say to your question, I think that, number one, people recognized how critical student services still were even in a pandemic. So that even my campus, who sometimes we might have limited resources, it was critical for us to get Zoom software. It was critical for us to figure out how to use Blackboard Collaborate. It was critical to get this technology in the hands of faculty so they could still stay engaged with their students, right? That even though technology may be expensive, when you think about the cost benefit analysis of not being connected to your students, it was a cost that nobody really wanted to see how expensive it was going to be to not be connected to your students, you know? So the idea of creating like, we have Zoom lobbies now, which, you know, you know, so we had faculty who were like, Dr. Anderson, uh, help me with this Zoom lobby thing. Tell me about this. What does this look like? And we were like, yes, here are the directions. This is what it looks like. So just this idea of a student clicking on a link on their phone and, and having somebody's face there and saying, how can I help you with paying your bills or how to help you with financial aid? I mean, yes, could we have been doing these things if we wanted to be... Um, you know, just using technology for technology's sake? Yes. But the pandemic created, you know, I, I always like to think of it as an accelerant, right? It was a catalyst. Like these challenges that we always had were always there, but it really just kind of just put like the fire on the gasoline, right? And so then we really had to figure out how are we leveraging technology to reestablish or restore some of the connections that were broken and lost. But then we still had a lot of our students in our rural communities, um, you know, for example, they didn't have the hotspots. They didn't have... Uh, the Wi-Fi accessibility. They didn't have the computer accessibility. And so I was just so proud of our campus, how we just stood up and said, okay, how can we get computers in their hands? How do we get hotspots in their hands? What can we do to get this technology in our students' hands? 
So I will say that technology doesn't solve all the problems. If anything, we created a technology solution here in Elizabeth City, and then we still had students over there. They were like, well, that's great, you know, but I'm not in Elizabeth City, so how do I get my hands on that? But I think that, you know, our ability to invest in our students in that way, I think was just, I love to see it. And it was just wonderful for, to hear my provost and my chancellor say, what do you need us to do? How can we help? What are the students' concerns? What do we need to do? And for me being able to ask students, like, what do you need? How can we help? And we try to get it to them as soon as possible. So definitely, I think the pandemic set us on a course where we saw how technology could help. Uh, but then it also revealed just so many gaps, you know, that you have to think holistically about, yeah, you can solve this problem, but then are you creating this problem? And then how do you address this problem over here? Um, because, you know, we never had a computer requirement before, right? We never said everybody needed to have a laptop. You know, we never really thought about where our students live, right? Because they all came to campus. But the pandemic, right, shut a lot of that down. But, you know, if anything, I would definitely tell you that I am, if I was not a systems thinker before, OMG, I am now. You know, I just think that sometimes, you know, what if, if somebody told me the other day, you can never waste a, uh, never waste a good pandemic, you know, you can't waste a good crisis. Like sometimes it really just sharpens you as a professional in, in ways um, that you couldn't have imagined. So, yeah. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Yeah, and I think a lot of us became very creative on how we engage our students and I mean, even the priorities kind of shifted where things that may not have been priorities pre-pandemic, like moving a process online or getting Zoom or getting having Zoom rooms or extra things within you know, within Zoom or Skype or, or Teams, whatever any, the institution's using, all of a sudden was the priority once the pandemic hit. And it's like, okay, we need to do this and get this done. But then, like you said, just because you solve certain issues, other, issue, other issues may arise. And one of the things is we've had students that at every institution that some are loving this online virtual environment. Others are like, nope, I'm not for this. And maybe I'm going to take a term off and I'll come back if we are back on campus. And I know for you, one of your passions is student success, but with a focus on retention. So for over this year being on this pandemic, you know, many institutions might be returning back in fall, maybe not, maybe some type of hybrid. And retention has been that word that's been thrown around a lot, especially because we've been remote. What are your thoughts or suggestions for institutions as they try to address the retention issue? Right. No, that's that's a great question. Because that's been something that I have been. Um, you know, sometimes there's questions that keep us up at night and then there's some questions that just kind of stick with us as we move forward. And I think that it's not one of those questions that terrifies me, but it does nag at me because I do care a lot about our students in terms of how they are experiencing 
one of the one of the most important milestones, right? When you think about students who come to college, like our freshmen, they're on campus, but they're in their rooms. They can't have roommates or they're gonna be suspended, right? Or kicked out of the residence halls. And that's really for their safety, right? We don't want COVID to be spreading around the residence halls. Um, and so we wanna keep them safe. And so that's why we've limited visitation. Um, so, what do we do to make sure that they are developing and they're making social connections and that they're not just taking all their courses all online in order to be safe, right? We have this idea of safety being paramount, but what it does is it has created isolation. Um, my daughter, like I, I had mentioned earlier, you know, before we had started recording, she's graduating this um, June, but she's one of those students that has was a junior in March went to school as a senior all online, right? And they'll be graduating, will be one of those freshmen coming in. Well, she's been online for almost a year and a half, you know? And so then how are you integrating this, this freshman, right? Who's been isolated. And then you've got the sophomore now who's, who's also been kind of isolated. And so you have to ask yourself from a retention standpoint, have you created an environment? Because I really do believe that retention is a byproduct of a great academic, cultural, social, inclusive, fill in the blank environment, right? It's a byproduct of a great academic and social environment. And so then you have a dynamic here where how are you, how are you able to manage that dynamic if it's so much of it is online? You know, so much of it has been taken out of the control um, based on a lot of it um, being virtual in that way, you know, so when you start talking about establishing relationships, um, how are you able to help with the anxiety or maybe some of the fears or concerns that parents and students have had? Now, here we've done a really good job of here's some virtual events, here's some things that you can do that is safe, you know, here's some ways that you can come outside the residence hall and as long as you're social distancing. We've actually are going to have commencement in person but it's going to be a safe social distance um, engagement. We are actually going to have orientation in person for freshmen this summer. And then we are going to revert to classes um, where we have pretty much the same percentage of online classes the way that we did prior to the pandemic. So we're trying to return back to normal here in North Carolina. But, you know, then you have to figure out, are people going to come with you, right? You know, you still have some trepidation with faculty and staff and the current students who were like, are you sure? Are you sure it's safe to go back in the water? Kind of like Jaws, right? Like you told us to get out of the water. Now you tell us to get back in the water. Are you sure I'm not going to be eating alive? And we're like, we promise you. We're almost seeing on the other side of COVID, but like you've done such a good job of managing their health, right? That they believed you keep your mask on, sanitize your hands, sit here, don't sit there. And then one day you wake up and it's like, no, no, you can sit here now and, you know, and maybe one day you can't take your mask off. Like it's going to take a moment for people to relax and to feel as if what's happened now has passed. And so we're looking at retention and we're actually for our pre-registration numbers, we're actually doing OK right now. But that's what I mean. That's the nagging in the back of my head. Like I reached out to my advisors and I said, OK, how you know, I'm seeing our number look like this. Let me know if people are transferring. Let me know if people are not coming back because they're wanting something else. You've got to let me know what that's looking like. Is it a financial issue? Have people lost their, parents have lost their jobs because of COVID? You know, we actually have a program where our students are going to go to summer school for free. 
because I started looking at how many students did not make 15 credits in the fall because we still had our last pass fail policy in the fall, but we're not having one this spring. So we had like a Vikings strong campaign. We're the mighty Vikings here in Elizabeth City. So we had a Viking strong campaign and it was like, don't rely on a pass fail policy. You need to be strong. You need to make sure that you're hitting the books, make sure you're going to class, make sure you're hitting tutoring because we wanted it not to be a situation where people were waking up one day and they're like, no pass fail policy. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? How am I going to make sure that I'm not on academic warning or probation and, uh, and that I don't get financial aid? So we want to make sure that we are doing all that we can because you're right, retention is not one of those things that you can fix immediately, right? If your grades suffer, you know, it's, it's hard. To, I always tell people like it's like lifting a house, you know, you get one bad semester that's 16 15 credits and then you add another semester on top of that and then guess what it's 30 31 credits you know you just this house keeps getting heavier you know stop thinking that 1a is going to lift up these 31 credits and so you know just really trying to help people focus on the holistic support and the design we have a freshman assembly and so we're actually going to have like a you know, remember field day when you guys were in like elementary school and it was like three-legged race contests or like you have to run and make sure you don't drop the egg and so we're going to try to do not you know some field events that are socially distanced but you know really just getting them outside in the warm weather and them seeing each other you know it's just it's so weird but that they're just craving just connection you know and that's something that when you think about from a retention standpoint how are you affirming that for them that when they come back next year, things will be different. They will have a different experience. Uh, being in the classroom, you'll still continue to learn and grow at a rate that you can continue to achieve your, your goals or your vision for why you're in school. A lot of people, you know, when they're isolated, depression can sit in. You don't know why you're there. You feel like you're wasting your money. You know, all those things can kind of sit in if you're not really being active and engaging yourself and saying, no, this too shall pass. You know, what am I doing to get out of my, you know, to expand my comfort zone, if you will, um, to engage people differently. And so that's what we've been really working on with our students. But then let's not forget that it's not just your freshmen you should be focusing on. It's your sophomores, your juniors, you know, and even your seniors. Sometimes you would think you're with your seniors. It's this idea like you're almost finished. But people get tired. I don't care what level of credits they've accumulated. People get tired and everybody needs to be motivated at a particular level. So, you know, I just I offer that advice to those who are in the enrollment management game. I offer that to people who are in the student success work like myself. But then I think also just a moment of hope for our advisors who are working with students who are, you know, just are struggling right now. We're all struggling. And I think just giving them grace and giving yourself grace. Um, sometimes you can't pick everybody up. And so I don't want people to be down on themselves because they haven't been able to pick everybody up. But I think that sometimes people just, they do need that reminder, you know, that a pan I always tell people this, you guys are gonna love this. I say, raise your hand if you've ever been in a pandemic and nobody raises their hand. So I say, give yourself some grace. And, you know, you just, Nobody's been here before, so nobody knows how to navigate this thing. 
you know, and so just encouraging your student, encouraging yourself, like you've never been here before. You've never seen what retention rates are going to do in a pandemic. We just don't know. And so we just need to take time to figure out what the right move is. But you have to give yourself that flexibility and that freedom to figure out how, how do you change your pathways and, you know, to keep looking at the data and to keep talking to your students. If anything, more than ever, they need hugs and you can't hug them, but they do need hugs more now than ever. But but that but this is our reality. We're all operating in very, very new spaces. Linda, do you remember your first tweet? I don't. <laughs> Your your first tweet was, I love Nakata's energy. Can I say that I love Melinda Anderson's energy? I, your approach to things is fantastic and, and the way you are seeking to bring people on board. And I kind of want to delve into that a little bit more because I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, but I saw you talked a little bit about leadership and you said that it doesn't mean mean knowing all the answers but it does mean taking personal responsibility and helping to support those trying to make a difference can you talk to us a little bit more about leadership and, and what leadership means to you yes oh um that is so funny my first tweet you know oh my gosh i think i'm trying to remember who talked me into even getting twitter but oh i'm one of those old people but um you, you know, actually, I think you summed it up perfectly. I really do feel from my perspective, leadership, it really is about, it really is about establishing a vision and understanding where it is that you need to be leading others. But that doesn't mean that you have all the answers. I really do believe that. I mean, if it was up for, for one person to be the smartest person in the room, you were in the wrong room. You are in the wrong room. Like when people love to be the smartest person in the room, I really do question why you want to be in that space. I what, what I was saying earlier about us being in, in um, an educational or learning organization, right? The goal is for us to continue to learn, to continue to grow. And that's what I love about my work. I learn from my students every day. I learn from my faculty every day. And it's with this idea that I want to become better because when you know better, you do better, right? And when I think about leadership, I really do think about this idea of being inspired. And I don't know how you inspire people if, you, if you're not allowing them to be who they are supposed to be, right? With their talents, with their energy, with their skill set. Um, and when I think about the people that you're supposed to have around you, I guess, in your circle, why wouldn't you want to learn something new, right? Like, I don't want somebody that looks like me. I would want to learn something different. I would want to learn something new. But when I think about from a leadership perspective, right, at the end of the day, everybody has a role to play. And I do feel that leaders who do step up and take responsibility for the actions of others when something doesn't happen. So let's, let's think of a work setting. Something doesn't happen. The boss wants to know what didn't what didn't happen. That's not the opportunity to say, well, so-and-so didn't do what they were supposed to do and you shouldn't be. No, no, not at, not at all. You know, at the end of the day, I always tell people, you know, I have no problem asking the questions and I have no problems getting the smoke. I will never put my people out there, you know, but when I come back and, and I'm trying to figure out what happened, 
you know, then that's that's when that's when we talk. You see what I'm saying? So it's not as if I don't get the information that I need in order to make the decisions or to, to help understand what happened. But there's a time and a place. And then there's a certain level of energy. You can't leave with fear, you know, and my mother taught me that a really long time ago. You know, the reason why I think I love my mother so much is because I respected her so much. You know, just this idea of when people come in the room and you're scared to death that somebody's going to say something to you, you can't lead effectively that way. People can't be creative. People can't come up with new thoughts and ideas when they're scared to death of saying the wrong thing or afraid that they're going to get fired or afraid of what somebody may or may not say. And then the reason why I think I appreciate people so much is because I've been in situations where I wasn't appreciated, not because, um, what's the word I'm trying to say? I just know what it feels like to not feel as if you're um, valued. So I always work really hard to make sure that people know that they're valued for big or small contributions. You know, there's a wonderful woman that works in our office and every morning I see her, I say, thank you so much for keeping us safe. Thank you so much for keeping our building clean and safe. And I don't have to worry about getting sick or bringing illness home to my family. And she was like, thank you so much. And I'm like, I see you work hard. I notice you every day. And to walk past people who we think that their job is small is shame on us. Because her job is not small. The whole reason why I'm able to come and sit in my office right now is because of Miss Priscilla, you know? And so when I think about us always praising big leaders like, oh, thank you so much, Chancellor so-and-so, or thank you so much, President so-and-so, is it because you want to be seen or is it because you really want them to know that you appreciate them? So I, I always found myself, and you know, my dad is military, my dad's in the army, so my dad would always have these like really cool sayings. And when you were younger, you'd be like, well, I don't, you know, you know, when you pay, your dad would say, or your, your mom would say stuff to you. And like my parents would always be, no lie. My parents would say this to me. They would say, you know, fat meat is greasy. And I would be like, I don't, I don't understand. You know, when you're young, you don't understand. But now that I'm older, I know what it is, is what it is, right? You know, fat meat is greasy. Like you gonna learn today, you know, it's pretty much... So my parent, my mom's from Mississippi, my dad's from Florida. And so they always had these euphemisms. And so growing up, you know, I just recognized that when you lead others, it's because you care about their welfare and their benefit. My dad was in the infantry and he led people and he had to care about their safety and their well-being. And so that's every day of the week when I think about how I'm leading a team or how I'm leading others, I think about you know, not only if I'm leading them in the right direction, but am I caring about them as individuals? Do they know that I care about them beyond the work that they do for this organization, number one? And then number two, you know, um, am I doing all that I can to do right by them for what it is that they need in order to be successful in their role? Those are the two things that I live by, you know, and as long as I know that I'm, I'm able to do those two things, everything else will fall under that. I bet there's a lot of listeners that are listening to this right now when this comes out and are nodding their heads and agreeing with everything that you have just said and are also probably wondering, can Melinda be our boss? <laughs> you know, I thought you were going to say it's fat meat greasy. And I was going to say, yes, 
fat no. meat is crazy. It really is. Now, one of the things within Nakata is, you know, you've done a lot within Nakata. And most recently, you have been elected the incoming Nakata president. So, one, congratulations. And two, what are you most excited about? <laughs> well, thank you. I am, I am thrilled. I'm over the moon. When I um, first got on the board um, for Nakata, I was I was just so happy and blessed to be elected to the board, and never really thought about running for president. But I think that as I became acclimated, you know, I did run, and I didn't I wasn't successful with this past term. Um, Cecilia is an amazing uh, president, but you know. I remember thinking to myself, you know, I think I'll run again and we'll see because I really do believe that God puts our feet where our feet are supposed to be, you know. Um, and so when I was a when I won the election this time, I feel honestly that I'm more prepared than ever to walk into this role. I think Nakata is at this cusp of change in terms of how we move forward as an organization with a new vision and a new mission and new strategic goals. And so I feel like I'm supposed to be moving into this phase right now as we start these conversations about what does this look like for us now? So when I think about what I'm excited about, um, I think it is about having these conversations. We just went to um, several of the regional conferences to to have conversations with members about, well, this is our proposed vision and mission statement, and these are our proposed strategic goals, and hearing the feedback from the membership about what they think um, the future of Nakata should hold for us. And when you're just hearing that feedback, I think that that's the part that I was excited the most, you know, just kind of hearing, you know, the agreement of like, yes, yes, we need to be moving in this direction. Um, but then also hearing wonderful things like, for example, we have, you know, is Nakata is a leading and not Nakata is the leading and people are like, what's wrong with being the leading, you know, and not a leading organization. Right. So then I just I just love advisors. Right. You know, like the wordsmith, let the wordsmithing begin, you know, and just really hearing their thoughts about how proud they are to be a member of Nakata and saying, you know, we're premier. We should be doing this. And then their thoughts and concerns around diversity and inclusion. Uh, what does it mean to be global? And, and how do we create a structure to incorporate what it means to be global? And so those are the conversations I'm excited about diving into. Um, everybody's talking a little bit about, I can't wait for us to be in person again, you know, as we kind of go into thinking about annual conference, you know, and supposed to be in Cincinnati. So I think that those are the kind of things I'm excited about. You know, the idea of being able to see your colleagues in person again, maybe, hopefully. Uh, but then also recognizing that the virtual space that we're currently operating in has really helped a lot of people. You know, a lot of people feel they, they are still connected with seeing their colleagues, even though we are working in virtual spaces. Like just having this conversation right here is amazing. Um, and so those are some of the things that I'm looking forward to coming into that role. And maybe then kind of drawing on, on that a little bit, because the this episode is coming out on the Monday of Global Advising Week. 
and it is really a, a you know a year and a bit into the majority of people being on online, working online, supporting students online. And, you know, the next phase is going to look different for different people as, as it moves at, at a different pace. But just you, your thoughts, I suppose, on Global Advising Week, you know, and, and what it what it means in, in, in 2021 for NACADA and the global advising community. I would definitely say global the concept of global, I'll start here. The world is not as big as we like to think that it is, which is I'm excited to, to think about it in that way. Um, I was in uh, our last international conference was in uh, Belgium. And I remember thinking I was getting ready to, you know, go to Greece. And then I know that we are uh, virtual with Greece this year. But when I think about from a global perspective, you know, I know for me since that time, when I think about where we are with the pandemic, global for me has evolved in terms of thinking about not just as a, a destination, if you will, right? So I've been to a couple of international conferences, but for me, I think that my attitude or my thoughts around what does it mean to be global from a Nakata membership perspective is really about connecting more so to my colleagues who are not operating in American higher education spaces like myself. You know, it's not about me going over here to a place. It is about me connecting with my thoughts and ideas about what they're experiencing and how they're helping their students and what are the best practices that we can share together. Because every time I walk away from those experiences, that's what I come back with. So when I think about the pandemic, you know, and you're cutting down the idea of traveling and you're cutting down what food are you eating and you're cutting down like where are you staying and what hotel you're staying. When you get down to the brass tacks, that's all that we're really talking about, you know, and those are the things that you still get excited about at the end of the day. Like even though it's a virtual uh, international conference, you know, at the end of the day, that is the the, the conversations that we're having, those are the things that you go for. Those are the things that I'm excited to still talk about. And so when I think about as we move into this Global Advising Week, we're still celebrating supporting or helping to support our students with excellence in academic advising globally, right? And so the idea of celebrating our colleagues across the world is what this week is designed to do. And so it's not about it being a particular destination. It is about us coming together as colleagues across the world with the shared and mutual interests of the way that we're working with our students. Um, and so that is what I'm excited about the most in terms of seeing and connecting with. Um, and so I just wanted to share the way that my thoughts have been evolving because the more colleagues that I get to know that are operating outside of different spaces, the more educated I am about what this concept of being global truly means in Nakata. So that's well put. I mean, it's, you know, it's not necessarily that destination, but it's a destination, it's a destination to advise no matter where you're at, but also to rejuvenate your mind and get new ideas. Absolutely. And one of the things within Nakata is they've been posting over the last year, like a leadership spotlight series that they've been posting on social media and yours was posted. And one of the things that, that stood out was it mentioned how you love music 
you love wine and you love laughing with friends as well as you've watched lord of the rings over 500 times so <laughs> let's make this fun is there a type of music or a musician or a group that when you need to take a break from the world is your go-to music and if you have a glass of wine listening to that music what type of wine is it oh my gosh so you know i love this music question so Tank, uh, was it Tank and the Bangas is what I'm listening to right now, uh, because I fell in love with, I think it's called what, Tiny Desk? It's a Tiny Desk? Oh my gosh. So I am one of those music people, because remember I told you it was a math comm major, I had my own radio show, and so I did Latin and jazz was my radio show. So I mean, I love R&B, hip hop, rap, you know, reggae, go-go, DC, shout out to my Northern Virginia DMV friends, and, um, but I also played the clarinet for, oh, seven years, and I played the violin for two years, and so I love classical music, and I love all types of music, and my dad, is his favorite band is Steely Dan, so I grew up on Steely Dan and the Beatles, and then he introduced me to Jimi Hendrix, right, so I come to school, and I'm like rocking out, my brother introduced me to Queen, and so that's what I listen to. I listen to Steely Jan's um, Pandora Station. That's what I listen to when I really need to just like relax. And I love, um, I'm into reds now. So I'm into sweet reds. I used to be into like Rieslings, um, but I switched to reds recently because of my sister. She was like, your, your wine taste need to evolve. And so I told her, I said, I can't go into really dry reds. And so then I decided to go into sweet reds right now. So that's where I am. I, I used to be in all the sweet, sweet wines, the Moscato. And then I had people tell me like, that's not real. Like you, come on, come over to the red side. <laughs> I, I know. My sister was just like, what are you doing? You need a Shiraz. You need a Merlot. And I was like, I'm coming. Just stop rushing me. I'm I'm getting there, you know. <laughs> um, final one for, from me. Um, just I, I've seen you mention this quote a couple of times from Jennifer Jocelyn. Get a major, get a mentor, get a moving. Talk, talk to us and our listeners a little bit about that. Jennifer Jocelyn. If anybody has a chance to meet Jennifer, if you're listening to this, you know I love you, girl. Jennifer, I was at, uh, it was one of my it, I, one of my first annual conferences, and she was there, and she was welcoming all the members. And so get a, a major. That is this idea that in Nakata, when you become a member, the goal is to kind of figure out where your fit is. Like, what is it that you're interested in discovering in terms of being involved with either a community in Nakata or, you know, for me, it was the regional division. You know, I was a Virginia liaison and then I became a region two chair. So, you know, when she says get a major, it's this idea of like, where's your fit in Nakata? Like, where where do you want to kind of connect with, you know, people who look like you? Uh, get a mentor. I was in ELP. And so I did get a mentor. I came through that program. And so Peg Steele, love you, Peg. Um, she was my mentor in EOP. And she's actually the one that said, you should be region two chair. And I was like, there's no way, Peg, I could be region two chair. And she was just like, totally, you should you should run for this position. Uh, and then get a move in, you know, which is what I love because you can do all these things. You can get a major and you get a mentor and then you might not do a dang on thing and you don't have no results to show for it. And so Jennifer was saying, you know, once you get those two things established, you need to do the work. 
you need to do the work, which advisors are not, it's not foreign to us to, to roll up our sleeves and to get busy. We tell our students to do it all the time. And so that's exactly kind of uh, what I live by and my mantra. So I tell people all the time in Nakata, you know, you get a major, you get a mentor and you get a move in and let me know if you have any questions and I'd be happy to help you along the way. Nicely put. And as we wind down with the interview, of course, Charlie Nutt is retiring in a couple months. So this is Global Advising Week. You know, this is a, a tribute to Charlie in a sense, too, during this week. Is there anything you want to share, say, to Charlie about Charlie story? Yes. Well, Charlie, Charlie Nutt, Dr. Nutt. So Charlie... You know, everybody who's anybody who's ever met Charlie knows that he is just amazing. He's very warm. He's very charismatic. Um, and he wants you to be successful. He wants you to feel connected to the association. And my favorite story about Charlie, um, you know, is his bless, bless, bless your heart. Bless her heart, bless his heart. Like you can, he'd be across the room. You'd be like, bless his heart. You'd be like, oh Lord, I hear Charlie somewhere by. He's somebody's blessed somebody's heart, and you know. And I know that that old Southern euphemism sometimes means something bad happened, but I just, I just know that Charlie's heart is is always been big. He's always helpful, um, and he always wants people to feel connected and. Um, you know, and feel as if, um, you know, that they are part of Nakata. And so I, I really do know that that comes from a really nice space in terms of the way that we are trying to create a sense of belonging within the organization. And, and what I've always admired about Charlie is that he's very selfless in that way. He works very, very hard in order to make sure that Nakata is espousing, um, its ideas and its values um, every time we put on an event, every time that we have a meeting, and to make sure that we're holding true to our vision and our mission within the organization. So um, really sad to see him go, um, but really excited about the next chapter um, of what's in store for him. And I know that he won't be too far from us, uh, but he deserves uh, this next to walk into this next chapter. Um, and I'm just really happy for him and I'm going to miss him a lot. So thanks. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Colin. I think this has been absolutely fantastic. It's been so insightful. Um, you are the personification of that Jennifer Jocelyn quote. And for listeners who, you know, Matt mentioned earlier, there'll be plenty of them nodding their heads for listeners who, who want to reach out to you, maybe, um, to, to, you know, you are an expert, a leader in the field. What's the best way for them to do that, Melinda? Oh, yes. So I am, um, you know, it's so funny you mentioned that. The best way probably to get in touch with me um, is my email, because <laughs> I can't remember my Twitter handle off the top of my head right now. Maybe you guys could put it up there when we <laughs> do this episode. But um, Melinda Anderson 002 at gmail.com. Um, and then I'm definitely on LinkedIn. So people want to find me on LinkedIn. Um, Melinda Anderson can find me on LinkedIn there too. So definitely 
reach out. I'd be happy to talk and, and give some great advice on how people can get connected um, to Nakata or Nakata Leadership. Um, it's really made a difference for how I've been able to influence my practice um, with student success. So I would encourage anybody um, to just reach out and, and ask any question that you wish. Nice and fun, informative interview. We definitely appreciate it and hope it all works out and we all see each other in Cincinnati. Absolutely. So the interview you just heard was recorded in the middle of April, was days before we found out that Dr. Melinda Anderson was going to be the new executive director of Nakata. So we asked Dr. Anderson to join us one more time for this episode to talk about this incredible news. So Melinda, welcome back. And oh my goodness, congratulations on this. This is amazing. So what happens now? Are you both incoming president and the new executive director? You know, I just want to thank you both for, you know, allowing me to kind of come back and have this discussion. Um, but no, actually, you know, now that, you know, I've been offered and accepted the position, I have to resign from the board, right? It'd be hard to, you know, honestly manage yourself, you know, right? In that sense, right? Because the executive director supports the vision of the board of directors for Nakata. And so I will have to resign from the board. Um, and then there is a process that will be in place for them to move forward with um, selecting uh, a new president. And then uh, they will also have a process in place for what they're going to do to replace uh, the board member. And so that will all, the dominoes will fall accordingly um, once things kind of move forward in the summer, um, I don't start officially until July 1. And so um, I'll be ending my time here at Elizabeth City State University uh, on May 21st. And so that will give me some time to transition because I will be moving to Manhattan, Kansas, the little apple. So I'm very excited about that transition. Um, and so giving myself some time and space to do that. Um, is is important to make sure that all those transitions occur so yeah so i will be resigning from the board but i'm really excited to step into this next chapter professionally and to be able to to you know lead and serve this amazing organization you know i think nakata means different things to different people but i think ultimately at its core Nakata has been able to support so many of us professionally. And when we think of the field of advising or when we think about our profession um, as academic advisors and in the field of student success, um, Nakata has just been paramount in, in leading um, that vision for how we work and how we think on our campuses. And so just to be a part of that uh, executive office and to be a part of the new vision moving forward, I just I can't wait. I'm just so thrilled and I feel very blessed to be able to take on this opportunity. Well, I can say certainly, um, you know, echoing Matt, congratulations, but also I'm really excited as well. After we spoke the last time, I was really buzzing off that conversation. And then I saw the announcement. I thought, great, like, I think Melinda's going to be a fantastic executive director. And it's interesting, though, you were saying about the, the dominoes kind of falling and different pieces having to go into place because we're recording this on the day of the NFL draft. And that is all about different dominoes. To, you know, if somebody gets taken, then someone else has to slot in and all that. 
But um, I suppose we, we heard you speak so eloquently about leadership and about Nakata in our, in our previous interview. I'm just interested in terms of, you know, applying for this position. Um, what, what was it something that you, you kind of thought instantaneously? Was it something that you reflected on for a, a while? I suppose what sparked your your interest in it? Oh, well, that's that, I love that question, Holm. Thank you. It's, you know, honestly, you know, when you I've been in a member since 2009. And so we all know, you know, I came into the organization knowing uh, Dr. Charlie Nutt. And so when he had announced his retirement, you know, it was not a thought in my mind, you know, that this would be an opportunity for me. But as I started thinking about it and then the position description was shared and a lot of people, you know, you always have that like trust circle, right? You know, you have your people who tell you the truth no matter what. I recommend that everybody has that circle because sometimes they have to tell you things that you don't want to hear and they tell you things that you probably don't see in yourself. And it was like, well, why wouldn't this be an amazing opportunity for you? Look at how committed and dedicated and passionate you are about student success and your journey and you understand the organization. But then think about the work you've done on different types of campuses, you know, being at uh, PWI or Research One and now currently at an HBCU, you know, you would be taking so many of those experiences with you. And so I started looking at the position and I saw that it was also teaching professor. And I thought, I would love to teach in the College of Education at Kansas State. Phenomenal program. You know, we have the PhD for academic advising and then the master's program and the certificate. And so I think, honestly, sometimes we don't see ourselves in those spaces. And sometimes it's up to our our friends or trusted colleagues and I'll be honest, even my mom was like, well, why wouldn't that be you? Isn't that what you love to do? Because I have never not been on a campus, you know? And so when you think about not working solely on a campus and being tied to like an enrollment cycle, right? And and moving, the students are moving in and pre-registration and all those cycles, you know, I just never really saw myself not working in that space, but looking at the position and, and thinking about it. And I'll be honest, you know, um, praying on it, reflecting on it, I thought, you know, if this is for me, you know, I don't want to tell myself no. And I applied. And then as I got involved in the interview process, I became so excited about the opportunities. And I kept hearing people say, you know, what's next for Nakata and how are we going to move forward? And what does it mean to be a global community? And I just found myself responding immediately, you know, being on the council and then being on the board and having those shared conversations, I, I, you know, it's one of those things that I guess I have been preparing, right, the whole time for this opportunity, but you don't think of it in that way. You know, you don't think that it's going to culminate in an opportunity to, to move into a role, per se. You just know that you love the organization. You know that you care about its vision and its mission, um, which is why, you know, being on the board for me was just so critical uh, in terms of how I felt like I was giving back. But I think that that's a great question. You know, how do you go from, could this be me to applying and then interviewing? And I think that I just, the energy just caught fire, you know, from reading the position description and the folks that are around you and then having amazing conversations with the staff at EO. They're amazing. 
phenomenal professionals that care deeply about what we do. And many of them have come from campuses. And so, you know, you start having those, those, those doubts that might be sitting in the back of your mind, they start to kind of dissipate. And um, as I started interviewing, like I mentioned, you know, I'm having these amazing conversations and, and then my passion just kind of just took off from there, you know, and just the ability to teach and to lead our activities in terms of professional development, but then also looking at grant opportunities and how we can continue to, you know, share the vision of Nakata, help practitioners, campus leaders, uh, policymakers understand what does it mean to really do student success the way that it should be done for it to be sustainable, number one, right? There's no quick fixes. But then number two, the cost of education, it is just growing at such a phenomenal rate. And the outcomes, you know, I worked on a liberal arts campus, shout out to the College of William & Mary. And I remember so many people said, I love my time here, but what does this degree mean for me? And I was like, what are you talking about? You're walking away with this skill set of reading and writing and critical thinking and and who wouldn't want you to be in the world of work or graduate school if that's what you chose to be? And so I still believe in the outcomes of higher education, any educational enterprise, right? It is our ability to look at ourselves and continue to grow is what shapes the world. And so being able to be a part of that, not just, um, you know, in the United States proper, right? But to be a part of that globally is what was be- what became very exciting for me. And so I feel like all those things caught fire and here I am. So I'm very excited. Definitely. Here you are. And you've had such an outpouring of love and support like that we've seen through social media as well. So I know that's probably been you know, very encouraging, you know, to, to see and to, to hear from, from others. Now you, everything you've talked about has been about like global, it's been about, you know, forward thinking. So I guess, you know, and I'm sure we'll interview you again after you're officially in the role and we'll probably ask you the same question to see if, if it differs, but how do you think, or how do you feel like your role right, you know, going in as the exec- new executive director, how this can, I guess, further academic advising globally? You know, um, that that's a really great question because, you know, during the interview process, I think that when, anytime I think you talk about vision, you know, when you think about the role that the board plays in terms of setting the vision for the uh, the members in terms of how we move forward with professional development and, and what that looks like and the structure and strategies as we move forward, when you think about the field, right, that's really your question, Matt. Like when you think about the field of academic advising, and I tie it to student success related matters because every campus is organized differently. So sometimes I don't want people to think, well, I'm not talking to a student about registration, but you might be an enrollment manager. You might be an admissions officer. Like all those things now are just being the synergy, I guess is probably what I'm speaking to, is that when you think about the enrollment cycle and a student coming into campus, the purpose of why they're coming to your campus is always going to be tied ultimately to the mission of that institution. But think about how many offices that student goes through, right, to even get into the classroom. 
And so when you think about what that means for the future of the way that we are working with academic advising, I do hope to continue to raise the profile of the excellence, the quality, the research, the scholarship, the the work that we're doing in Nakata around raising the, I guess, you know, raising the bar, right, in terms of how people need to be thinking about this work. I really do feel that that's probably one of the areas, not just I'm passionate about, but definitely one of the areas that you do have to hold on to. Because when we talk about professional development, well, what were you talking about? Excellence in academic advising. What do those processes and practices look like? Well, we would want to be talking about best practices, right? And so that's going to come from our scholarship. That's going to come from the way that we're operating in the field. And when we talk about that on a global scale, you know, you have to think about the context in which we're operating. So the way that we operate in the United States versus the way we operate in Canada, the way that we operate in the UK, the way that we might operate in South Africa, like you have to give context in terms of how people are seeing higher education and how we're lifting others into the way that they're thinking about higher education and what those spaces look like. You have to be relevant. You know, it doesn't make sense for for me to talk to you about apples when you're thinking about bananas. It, that, that doesn't make any sense. You know, you could have the best apples on earth, but if they, they're not going to help me, they're just not going to help me. And so I think for me, it's about educating myself as quickly as possible, but also making sure that what we're doing is sustainable in our practices and the way that we're educating ourselves as an organization globally. Because I really do believe that when we say global, we are global, but we also know that that takes time, you know, for everybody to understand the context in which we're all operating globally. The world is getting smaller. We've seen that with the pandemic, right? We're all kind of operating in in similar spaces. But I think that you do have to give yourself an opportunity to continue to be educated about the context in which people are operating it in, in order to best serve them. And so I do feel like my role and uh, coming into this position is to, number one, do that, then to be able to help educate others around what does that support look like, and then being able to then come to campus leaders and members and say, how does Nakata best serve your needs? Because ultimately, we're here for the members. We're here for campus leadership, because that is the best way for us to be able to impact students' lives. And so we can't forget about how we're tied to the ultimate goal. And I think when you put all those dominoes, if you will, right, um, into play, they'll fall nicely, but you have to keep the alignment in the forefront of your mind. And so that makes sure that everything lines up accordingly um, in order to make sure that we are delivering on the outcomes in which we intend to when we talk about our vision and our mission and our strategic goals. Yeah, I like the the kind of roadmap of ideas that you've kind of laid out there in terms of, of a practical roadmap. Um, how does this play out for you now, Melinda? When, when, do you, when do you know yet when you move? Do you know yet how it, what exactly, you know, the next kind of few months are going to look like for, for you? Oh, um, I, I think I could probably talk a little bit, you know, I think it's going to be an interesting conversation maybe when we get together maybe later in the year, but practically speaking, you know, tying up, you know, my time here, you know, Elizabeth City, I don't know if you guys are aware, but we 
are really struggling right now with a lot of social justice issues with the impact of the murder that happened in the city. Uh, we are, as a campus community, coming together, right? And so tying up my time here, making sure that my students and my faculty, my staff, campus leadership is okay, it sits heavy on my mind right now. But practically speaking, my time does end on the 21st. And then I will be moving late July uh, to uh, Kansas in order to be in place. Uh, and then in that time of transition, definitely working remotely, getting up to speed to make sure that I'm aware of kind of all the things that are happening. There's a lot happening. Our organization, 15,000 members, lots of activity. We have summer institutes. We have the international conference. And those are just the things that I... I know about it from my board perspective, right? So imagine, you know, when you start pulling back the curtain and you start seeing all the magical operations of EO, of, of, of how I would be involved. And so lots of transitions, lots of conversations with the current um, executive director, you know, Charlie, as he transitions, me coming in, it will be lots of conversations to figure out what transitions now, what are the priorities, uh, what are those things that we need to be paying most attention to, What's in the middle? What are we planning for long term? And so I think as I move forward, I think it's going to be a matter of trying to understand what we talked about urgent versus important. You know, I, I remember I always had those conversations with my student, like what's urgent is important and what's important is sometimes urgent. And so you've got to understand like where they stand in that box. And so it's going to be a little bit of sorting that out. But then I also think about my, I just, I'm, I'm a big believer in relationships, right? And so my relationships with EO staff will change, right? As a board member, then to becoming, you know, a supervisor and really, you know, getting to know people from a different perspective. And so I'm very sensitive to that. You know, Charlie is amazing, but, you know, I'm not Charlie. And so just paying attention to the humanity right in the process as people transition and start thinking differently about what does this change mean for me because people love change right he's like i i just i'm i'm ready for change and then it's like all right change that shirt i love this shirt what's wrong with this shirt why can't i keep this shirt on and then you're like okay calm down you can keep your shirt on you said that you were ready for change maybe i was moving too fast and so i think that that's also going to be a part of the process with you know i i think about have you got it's like strength finders so I've taken, you know, strengths. And my first one is restorative. And my second one is context. And so I think about how those two have always played when I've come into a new leadership position. I'm always listening first. You know, I'm able to make decisions, but I need to make sure that I have enough information in order to make sure that we're moving in the right direction. You can't always wait for 100% of the information to make a decision because sometimes things are urgent, right? What's important, urgent. And so I think that's probably practically speaking going to be one of the things that I have to think about first. So understanding what's in front of us, what's urgent, what's important, and then organizing the work, but then making sure that I'm paying attention to relationships as we move forward. And then ultimately, we've got you know our members that we're consistently serving in different ways. So, you know, I just mentioned two events, Summer Institute, International Conference, and then the annual conference 
It's coming right around the corner. You know, hopefully we'll be able to see lots of people in Cincinnati, but then there's the sensitivity to budgets and the pandemic and people feeling comfortable with travel. So we're still, you know, operating in different spaces. So you have to think about how all those things do play into the context of how we move forward um, as an association. So those are just some of the things that I've been thinking, practically speaking. But I'm excited to to move to Manhattan and uh, look forward to settling in my new community. Many people have reached out, like you said, which has been I was I was overwhelmed with the response. I, I was my mom was like in tears, like, look at all these people saying congratulations to you. And I was like, I, people do like me, mom. I wasn't lying to you. No. But, you know, I just think that it's wonderful. That's how amazing our association is in our community. Right. That people are reaching out saying, I wish you the best. Congratulations. Um, if there's anything you need, don't hesitate to ask. People being very excited to say, I can't wait to work with you. And I think that that energy um, and that support is so, so welcomed, right? When you're transitioning into uh, this space. And so I appreciate everybody reaching out to me. And, you know, I just continue to uh, think about how to stay connected in different spaces right? Like I love this podcast because people are able to hear our voices. They're able to hear our thoughts and our ideas. And so how do we continue to leverage that energy and stay in that space as the vision of Nakata moves forward and we start operating in different spaces? And so I, my mind is always thinking, especially early in the morning or really, really late at night. Um, And so those are some of the things that I think about uh, in terms of like my 10 step checklist that I think about. Those are some of the things that are on that list. Well, hopefully on occasion you can turn off your mind so you can go to sleep and get some rest as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do. Like sleep hygiene, I tell all my students and especially my daughter, she's graduating senior from high school. I'm like, look, sleep hygiene is so critical. You need to be able to rest your mind. So no, I do rest, but I think, you know, they always say, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. I do feel that way about the work that we do you know, with advising and student success. You know, our students, I know sometimes they drive us crazy. Our faculty, our staff, sometimes they drive us crazy, but I just can't imagine myself doing anything else. Well, I look forward to having another interview with you, maybe like closer to the conference and we'll kind of see how things have progressed and, you know, see all the great things that are going to be coming out of Nakata. I mean, there's always great things already coming out of Nakata, but I think, like you said, change and change is good. And I think a lot of, a lot of folks are looking forward to the changes that, that are going to be happening, whether it's within the, the EO or just academic advising in general. And like you said, it's, you know, as a global network, it kind of seems like since the pandemic, we know that it's a smaller, you know, smaller world and we can always connect and build those relationships, just like you said. But Melinda, we're grateful for you to be on again with us to kind of talk about the, the new position that that you'll be having. So thank you so much for joining us today. No, thank you, Matt Collins. Thank you so much for having me. It's always great talking to you. I think you can hear the buzz of excitement during that interview. It was wonderful to have the opportunity to speak with Melinda, hear her thoughts on leadership, on her new role as Nakata's executive director, and on furthering advising globally. Up next, it's Dr. Terence McLean.
Dr. Terrence J. McLean is a higher education professional who is driven by the success of his students. As a first-generation college student, he attended Texas A&M University in College Station, Texas, where he earned his bachelor's degree in marketing. He then transitioned to Texas State University, San Marcos, where he earned his master's degree in student affairs and higher education. Before graduating, he became an academic advisor with Pace Academic Advising. It was during this time that Dr. McLean pursued his passion for working with minority populations and specifically African-American males and the effectiveness of academic advising in their student success and retention. He has conducted over 20 presentations at Texan, Texas Academic Advising Network, and NACADA, and won the Best of Region 7 on advising African-American males. Since then, Dr. McLean has published in NACADA's Academic Advising Today on advising African-American males. Dr. McLean also graduated from Texas State University with his PhD in adult education, where his research titled Advising African-American Males from the Advisor's Viewpoint. He has since spoken at various institutions on this topic, been hosted on podcasts, and is writing for publication with his research. In his spare time, he loves to cook, make peach cobbler, and serve the Lord in all that he does. Dr. McLean served as the president, past president, and co-chair for two annual conferences for Texan. He has also served as Texas State Liaison for Nakata Region 7. Dr. McLean is grateful for his experiences, but is most grateful for his wife, who constantly supports and encourages him in all that he does. I think this is going to be a fun and informative interview. Thank you so much for joining us. And what's the weather like right now? Because last time we spoke, the weather was pretty crazy in Texas. Yes. Well, the weather is continuing to be, you know, its normal self. And uh, right now, I guess it's, you know, fulfilling um, it's what we call April showers, uh, May flowers. Uh, right now, the weather is, I mean, I came in yesterday, it was warm. I went out for lunch, it was cold. I came out again this morning, it was kind of warm. So, <laughs> so I don't know what's going on. And it's kind of raining. So whatever. I, I'm guessing that the warmth would probably be a little bit different to uh, how warm it gets here in Dublin. And having been to San Marcos once upon a time myself, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a beautiful part of the world, but very different to Dublin. But we are delighted to get the opportunity to chat to you today. And Matt covered in your bio, I mean, you have quite the repertoire and uh, we will cover a lot of that in this but we always like to get to know our guests a little bit and give listeners the opportunity to get to know you. So can you talk to us a little bit, Terence, about how you came to work in higher ed? Yes. Um, I mean, this is great to, you know, know about a person and kind of their journey. Um, and for me, I think uh, being at Texas A&M and being on a campus that uh, supported students being extremely involved, I would say most of the students on the campus are overachievers. Um, and so for myself, as I got into uh, college, my freshman year at, at Fish Camp, which is our freshman orientation, um, you know, they promoted get involved, get involved, because it's an opportunity for you to uh, really get to know people and things like that. But little did I know that that uh, involvement would spark um you know, my passion to be in higher education and work with students. And I was like, I'm ready to go uh, get through 
um, the end of my career journey, my academic journey, um, you know, I felt like I don't want to leave. I'm not ready to graduate college and, and go and be a real adult. Um, and thankfully, because of my involvement, I was able to interact with other people that worked in higher ed. Um, and they said, you know, I think this will be a good fit for you. Um, so while I was doing my study abroad in Germany, um, I applied uh, to uh, go to my master's program um, here at Texas State. Um, and so that's just kind of a little bit of my journey. I got involved uh, in everything. I ran for class president. If you don't know anything about a and I ran for Yale leader. Um, I also was in everything from like a gospel choir to a hip hop dance team. I mean, I, whatever I could do, I still did not do everything that I wanted to do. Uh, but whatever I could do, um, that's where I wanted to be. And so I think those opportunities really uh, gave me the passion that I needed to work in higher ed because obviously I didn't grow up thinking I want to work in college for the rest of my life. Um, it wasn't until I got in the space that I found that passion. Yeah, and it's one of those things where when we ask that question about like your your background, how you got to where you're at, yeah, that's kind of like the, the same answer. Is like we never thought like, yeah, I wanted to be in advising or I wanted to you know be in a higher ed. We always wanted to do something else, but our path kind of led us this way, and everyone kind of has their their different journey. Now you're currently right now at Texas State University, correct? Yes. So can you talk about your current role and what that entails? Yes. Um, I actually, uh, next year, I will be at Texas State for 10 years, uh, a whole decade, which is a lot for a millennial. But anyway, um, my role at Texas State, I'm actually in academic coaching. Um, so I started off at academic coaching and I transitioned to academic advising and then now I'm back in academic coaching. Um, and so at our institution, we have those two things separate. Um, and uh, I work with students on time management, study skills, uh, note taking, but I also work with uh, upperclassmen uh, really with trying to figure out what their next step is going to be. And so I kind of coach them, walk them through step by step of what it is to figure out their next step in their next journey. Um, so I try to do my best to uh, match those career aspirations with their academic goals um, and then make sure that they're you know successful in the way that they need to be and just be that extra support. But I also do something else that's very interesting that we uh, had a grant that uh, worked on financial education. Um, and so since then we have uh, kind of embedded this uh, financial education uh, with uh, coaching. And so I work with students also to help them uh, with budget, uh, knowing more about student loans and how to reduce debt, um, and then um, credit as well. So it's been an interesting journey. I do a lot of event planning um, on my campus. Um, so we have large success with people uh, coming out to our events. We work with uh, credit unions across the uh, area and we give out scholarships and things like that. So it's it's been a really cool journey and um, people want it to stay. So we're continuing to do financial education on our campus. Yeah, really interesting work that you're engaged in. I want to delve a little bit back into your, um, your education because I was reading and it was interesting and you mentioned it your study abroad experience in Germany. I'd like to, if you could talk to us a little bit more about, you know, that's what studying abroad was like, but also the, um, your, your master of education in student affairs in higher education. 
suppose that's not something that's available in Ireland or, or really in the UK. It's, it's beginning to emerge here. Could you talk to us a little bit more about that and what exactly you studied? Yes. Um, so my educational experience in Germany was fantastic. Um, I had a lot of uh, wonderful, really funny experiences, but at the time they were very traumatic. Um, at the moment, um, I remember, uh, you know, wanted to go study abroad. And when I got to be my junior year, because I was so involved, I didn't really make the space to go and study abroad like I wanted to, um, because I was always doing orientation um, in the summer and taking summer school and um, be doing fish camp and things like that. So I decided this is my last opportunity to go, and I decided to go for a whole semester. But what I didn't realize was that I was going by myself. <laughs> I thought I was going with a group of people. I don't know. I didn't read all the way into it, and so, but I wanted to go. Uh, and also, uh, this was one of the areas where you didn't need to uh, speak German. So I didn't speak German either. Um, and so I was like, great, I'm going to go. Uh, but I didn't, I don't know what I was thinking, but I didn't think about outside of the school, I probably need to speak German. <laughs> so uh, I went to, I went there and I got off the plane and then, you know, all I hear is German and I'm like, I have no idea what they're saying. Uh, so I get there and, uh, you know, I'm supposed to be uh, getting picked up by someone. Um, that person never showed up. I, we never found each other. So I had to um, get a taxi to where I was going. And I was in a small winery village, very, very far away, about an hour and a half away um, from uh, Frankfurt. So I get there and, you know, I don't know how to speak German. So I'm just like, you know, pointing at things like, hey, you know, can you help me here? So I get there um, and I realized, okay, I'm in the spot in the location where I'm supposed to be staying, but I don't have the keys. <laughs> so I get there and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, so I sit outside on the curb um, and I'm like, I'm going to cry because I have no idea what's going to go, what, what's what's happening. And everything is in Germany. You know, I don't understand anything. Um, and this guy, he came to me. Um, he was an older gentleman. And he, uh, you know, he began to speak to me and I was like, to me, it like, because I didn't know the language, I was just like, I have no idea what you're saying. Um, and so it was in that moment that it really dawned on me that I'm in a foreign country that I don't know the language and I don't know what I was thinking when I did this. Um, and so uh, he re recognized that I have no idea what he's saying. So... This is a funny moment. Um, now, I just want to share with everyone. But he says, uh, so the next thing he says is Africa. And I, and I looked at him and I said, what? Like, like, why is he saying Africa to me? Uh, and then I was like, no. And then he was like, uh, Swahili. And I was like, what? I was like, no. And then I was like, oh my God. I was like, no, America. And then I was like, English. And he was so embarrassed. It was hilarious. Uh, 
So that was uh, my very first experience uh, being there. And then um, my second, I, I figured out how to get into my house and he helped me out and we found someone that could speak English to help me. And then I finally go to, uh, I wake up the next day. Uh, I had to sleep on the couch uh, because it was a flat and I stayed with other international students. And so uh, they, I had their own rooms with their own keys. Again, I didn't have the keys, so I couldn't get into my room. So I slept on the couch and I got up the next day um, and I got everything set up, but that was a whole nother uh, journey in itself. But my second wonderful experience uh, was when uh, we had our orientation for all international students. And it was interesting to be an international student. Um, and so I get there and... Um, they're calling out different countries, you know, that have come to, you know, be with this cohort. And so they say, we have one student from South Africa and everyone looks at me. <laughs> oh my God. It was hilarious. I just loved it because all I could think about was mean girls. <laughs> so, uh, everybody stared at me and I was like, okay, no, I was like, I'm from America. <laughs> Sorry. I'm from the U S people. And they're like, oh my God. Uh, so that was really funny, and I just thought that that was hilarious. Um, but uh, being in Germany was really awesome. Um, while I was there, um, I took uh, some classes on uh, to learn the language. Um, and then that was really awesome because I was there. I was able to, you know, speak it as soon as I learned it. Um, so I had a lot of great experiences and met a lot of people from other countries all over the nation, um, all over the world. Um, even found some people that have uh, uh, friends uh, on Facebook. We had a mutual friends um, that I met in Germany, which was really weird, um, which to goes to show you how small the world is. Um, and that experience was really, really great. And I, I got to meet a lot of people. And um, interestingly enough, um, a lot of those people I still uh, am in contact with. That was maybe 11, 12 years ago now. Uh, we've gone to each other's weddings um, and all kind of things. So it's been really awesome, uh, an awesome experience. But while I was there, you know, I had this epiphany that I wanted to go into higher education. Um, and so what I studied in um, that program at Texas State was a lot of student development. Um, I learned about a lot of identity development, uh, especially when it in regards to race and, you know, developing self-efficacy and self-authorship. Um, we learned about different student services across campuses, and we got to do a lot of internships as well. Um, and that program was really awesome. It, it took me outside of my comfort zone. I felt like I had to uh, learn myself all over again. Um, but I got the opportunity in that program to get into African-American male literature. Um, and I think that was kind of the spark that I had. And then as I transitioned into advising, I thought, why don't I keep this going where I'm at um, in my niche? And at the time, I didn't really see a lot of uh, articles or dissertations um, in the area that I was uh, doing this in. And then Around that same time was uh, the uprise of Black Lives Matter movement. So it kind of ended up being, um, at least the topic and my passion kind of ended up falling in a, a critical time for uh, the nation. So 
when I went to Region 7, I was able to present this information um, and it was very powerful and impactful at that time. So um, that was kind of my journey um, there and where I got to how I got to where I am now. Yeah, a lot of great experiences there. And it's it's funny how like you're talking about like how it's a small world and then also how you were able to make these friendships and still keep them to this day. And that's really amazing. It really shows the power of like those connections that you can make with others. But I feel like I feel like I would have been you when if I was looking at the study abroad, I probably would have assumed the same thing that I would have been going with a group. And then I would have freaked out if it was like, oh, I'm just me by myself traveling. <laughs> it was just me by myself. I mean, I flew by myself. And I mean, even the flying experience was uh, interesting because um, several people, several times, you know, asked me if I was going to Ghana uh, because I guess they thought I was from Ghana. Um, and I thought that was really interesting because nobody has ever approached me and asked me if I was actually from Africa. Um, and so that made me really want to dig deeper into uh, cultural heritage. But that's a whole nother story. Uh, but that was a really fun experience. Um, and no, I did not realize I was going by myself. Like after I had already signed up and I had my little orientation to prepare to go, you know, they were like, okay, you all are going to different countries. And I was like, what? You know, <laughs> so I thought we were all going together. And I was like, well, I guess it's too late now. You know, I'm just I'll I'll figure it out and I'll make it. And it was it was challenging. It definitely challenged me, but it was a wonderful experience. Yeah, absolutely. And you were referring to also within like Nakata Region Nine doing the presentation on and you also wrote the Nakata Academic Advising Today article for advising African American males. And in it you had I think you had quoted Harper in that in several cases, African-American males encounter with racism, racial stereotypes, microaggressions, and low expectations from professors and others that undermine their academic outcomes, sense of belonging, and willingness to seek help and utilize campus resources. And in that article, you, you mentioned that I think there was like three phases or approaches that advisors might be able to help students with or help through. And that was like, we as advisors need to be more aware and also be sensitive of these. And so you had mentioned that we need to, like there's enforcement as performance, there's playfulness as performance and negotiating as performance. Can you talk more about those approaches? Uh, yeah. And so it's been a long time since I wrote that uh, that article. And since then, I did my dissertation actually on the same topic, it, um, you know, you mentioned earlier. And so I kind of have a little bit more insight into those approaches uh, because that was some research that I had found from other people. But I got to actually, you know, do some uh, research on my own. Um, and so that kind of enhanced it. But uh, really, uh, and some of these same topics kind of came up in, in my research uh, about uh, being able to be human uh, and really show yourself as someone that's relatable. And the question that I always get uh, whenever I kind of have this sensitive topic about talking about African-American males is, you know, do you have to be African-American um, to uh, be able to relate to the student? And my answer is no. Um, typically, people 
want to gravitate to the that area that as an advisor you need to you know identify with the student uh with their race or heritage or culture um and that is not true uh you know you as long as you are able to relate and you can be relatable and be from you know completely different backgrounds um you know not every student that i meet with is african-american and so i would be posed with the same question of how do i relate to this student and i think it's just being human you know um a lot of times I relate to people with food because I believe that food is a universal language. You know, I believe that if anything, you know, we can come together on food. And so I usually start off by saying, you know, I love to eat this or I love to go to this restaurant or whatever. And I just find some uh, some small connection with the student, uh, no matter what it is, you know, if it's sports, if it's uh, food. Um, you know, if it's the weather or whatever. Um, and then we kind of go from there and uh, begin to develop the relationship. So really the the playfulness is just more of being a human and being relatable um, and not always seeming like, you know, I'm an authority figure, which you are uh, in that situation. But, you know, uh, joke around, you know, really kind of get to know them. And that's what that's all about. Um, and then, um Again, just being aware of maybe some of the challenges that they may go through. Um, and this is something that I even talk about in my uh, research um, that I did for my dissertation is uh, understanding that there's a lot of outside factors that may shape the the perception of that student as they come into an appointment. You know, if they have um, negative experiences on campus, you know, what we talked about negative stereotypes and um and, and racism and, and not being able to connect with their professors or even their peers, uh, which happened to me in several cases um, as an undergraduate, um, that may shape uh, how they come into an advisor appointment. They perceive you as maybe um, someone that's also not going to listen to them or going to pass them along or not be as helpful as they really need you to be in this, uh, in this space. Um, so that's another uh, opportunity. So if, if I'm aware of these things, then I'm able to navigate the the situation a little bit better uh, when I'm working with that student. Um, and not, you know, obviously you can't help how people come into your space, but you can always, you know, shift the atmosphere, as I like to say, um, with their personality and with the way you allow them to feel welcome in that space. And then um, really just kind of negotiating, really giving them um, options, you know, how is it that I can help you? You know, what is it that uh, you would feel comfortable? And it, it goes to that developmental approach, you know, uh, partnering with you to be uh, successful. And one of the things that I talk about a lot is a lot of times, you know, we can be quick to, you know, push students to an area that we feel that is most comfortable for them or we feel like, oh, no, I feel like you'll be better in this area. Um, and for this situation, it might be that maybe they're in a STEM major and we say, no, I think you need to be in liberal arts. And people do that uh, more often than we realize. I, you know, have many African-American males. They come and tell me that their advisor, you know, uh, tried to push them into being a liberal arts major or doing something that's more of the arts when they want to be a STEM major. Um, and so I think sometimes we may do it unconsciously um, and we may not do it out of ill intent. 
But we just have to be aware of those things. So negotiating, what is it that this student needs and how can I help them um, achieve their goals and not maybe the goals that I think that they should be? Because, uh, you know, I may see a student that comes in with uh, low math math scores um, and I might say, well, mm, I don't think you can be an engineering major because you need to start off at calculus and you're only in algebra. But um, if that's not what the student wants, then I need to help them get to where they need instead of trying to reroute them to something that may be a little bit easier in my eyes, uh, which is what I go back to lowering expectations. Uh, I have a lower expectation of what you can achieve. And the golden story that I always have for this is I had a student. Um, I love him. I think he's going to uh, graduate this year. So that's the end story. But he came in very low math scores. He came in as a computer science major, uh, you know, failed his first semester, uh, failed several classes after that. And, you know, the my logical brain would be uh, maybe you need to choose another major uh, because this is not for you. Maybe you need to do something else. But uh, despite these uh, challenges that he faced, he is now graduated, you know, with a computer science degree. Um, and so. If I had, you know, discouraged him from doing that, he would probably have, you know, blocked me off and said, you know, I was just like everything else that they've experienced. You know, I didn't believe in him. You know, um, I wasn't listening and I wasn't trying to support him. So uh, I think those are are some things to think about as we continue to work with African-American males. Yeah, I think what you said about being human and I knew I also knew this would be a really interesting interview, A, your bio, but B, I heard you on the Swagbender podcast with, um, I think, uh, Dr. D.T. Henry. And you, you covered some of what you talked about there, but you also, I think, um, and it's in your dissertation, the students feeling the, what was it? Um, I don't care how much you know until I know how much you care. And I thought that was a really lovely kind of, summation it was an understanding of of where students are coming from um and and how important that is to us as advisors i think it it, it in all our work it, is understanding where students are coming from and that feeling that we do care because it can feel to them that they're just a number especially given the, the monetary concerns around universities. So um, I liked how you you um, brought all that together. And one of the other things you talked about in that um, interview relating back to your dissertation was around, you know, concentrating and development for advisors and talking about educating yourself and the importance of conference att- um, attendance. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that for for listeners who, who haven't heard that interview? Uh, yes. Uh, so when we think about educating ourselves, uh, one of the things that I talked about in my dissertation is, you know, how did the advisors that I interviewed, how did they come to the knowledge uh, that they had or did not have? Um, and one of the, the top things that they mentioned was going to conferences um, and how a lot of the conferences were their first uh, exposure to this topic because, you know, to them, they didn't think about it, you know, and it's not saying that it's a bad thing, but, you know, I never realized that there was such a need uh, for a particular group of students. Um, And depending on where they're coming from and where they are, you know, they may not have heard these things. And so uh, conference attendance was awesome because, you know, they got to see 
presentations on diversity and um, maybe specific races and uh, cultural groups and things like that. So it kind of gave this awakening, this awareness of, okay, maybe I need to think a little bit deeper about how I interact with these students. And now that these things have been said, I can reflect back on my experiences and say, wait, maybe I didn't um, facilitate this well or Maybe that's why the student did what they did, or maybe that's why they didn't come back, or you know, or maybe that's why they continue to come back. Uh, so that was a, a good opportunity. And then you know, there were other ways that people educated themselves outside of just going to conferences, because going to a conference is not always feasible uh, for most individuals, especially working in higher ed with budget cuts and you know, pandemic just happening. So continued budget cuts. Um, but some people uh, stated reading, uh, you know, reading literature, uh, staying abreast with knowledge that's uh, being published. Um, some other people talked about more practical ways about being uh, in the same space. You know, I think sometimes it's easy to judge people based off of what we've, we've heard. And, you know, being someone that uh, now lives in a, 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 a small town, it's so easy to have group think, you know, because one person said this about a group of people, uh, then we all should believe that. And you've never even met these people. My biggest example that I think about is when I was in college and people would tell me I was the first black friend they ever had. And to me, that was crazy. You know, I'm from a large city. Uh, you know, I'm originally from Houston. Uh, very diverse. And then I come to college and people tell me I'm the first black friend they ever had in their life. Well, at the mo at the time, I didn't know whether to be angry or, you know, to feel sorry for this individual. But I came to the conclusion that, you know, maybe it's not their fault that they have never been exposed to anyone, you know, that was African-American. And the only, uh, experiences that they've had is what they've been shown on TV or what somebody has told them about, uh, you know, this group of uh, people. So um, being able to interact with people uh, of this group is very important because then you get to form relationships and you get to make your own um, ideas about this, this group. And then also you get to, you know, break stereotypes and debunk, um, different, um, associations that you may have placed on this group. Uh, so those are some of the things that people, uh, you know, stated that they use to educate themselves as well, but there were some other ones, but those are some, uh, some big ones that, that stand out. Yeah. And I guess related to that, you know, there's, there's different levels, right? You know, you have like the student, the advisor, the professor, the institution as a whole. And I mean, it almost just seems like within the last couple of years, like you, you hear a lot more about like equity gaps. I mean, it's been around for ever, you know? And when you drill down on, on the data, you actually can see where those equity gaps are. And you know, you have institutions that may put out their statements or say in meetings or town halls how they actively support and they throw out all, all the popular buzzwords. In your opinion, like, how do you feel like institutions can begin or continue to address those issues of equity gaps or 
academic outcomes or sense of belonging for students? Um, for me, I believe that it's, a, it's about being intentional. And that is a buzzword, you know, be intentional. We love to say that. But what I mean by be intentional is actually put the resources, you know, to dedicate it to this uh this group or whatever you're trying to do. So for example, you know, I think about, um, you know, if I'm, you know, looking at African-American males, I say, I want to, you know, uh, improve the equity gap with African-American males. But then I put this task, um, you know, to an office, like really like, or I put it, uh, I give it to one person, that person becomes, you know, the go-to person for decreasing or increasing, um, you know, equity for this group of students. Um, and then when that person leaves, the that leaves with that individual. Or, um, you know, if it's just an office, but it's not an institutional effort, then it's also like, you know, we're just spinning our wheels, you know, and we look good from the outside, uh, but really... Uh, the, the intention out there and the, the example I love to give is a fruit. One time I went to the country and uh, there was a pear tree and I love pears with my heart. Uh, and so I went to go pull from this pear tree to eat it because it looks so good. But when I got ready to eat into the pear, I saw that there was a beetle that had got in the pear and ate the pear from the inside out. And so the reason why I use that analogy is because a lot of times we try to look cute on the outside, but really what's going on the inside is not what looks like the outside. And so I think sometimes we we put things in place so that we can look good and make people think that we're really about equity and that we're about the student. But really, that's not the case. You know, sometimes it's about money. Let's just be honest. But uh, so what I would like to say for this, I think it's about being uh, intentional. And when I've seen these things really take place is when it's coming from the top, when it's coming from the institution. But also, you know, do you have concentrated efforts to really uh, dig deep and to ask those uh, those questions that need to be asked um, about this? So if I'm going to do something for African-American males, I don't I, I need maybe a whole center, you know, institutional efforts that are here to uh, increase uh or access or, you know, uh, give more efforts to helping these uh, African-American males be able to be successful. Just having a conversation about it is not enough, although that is a great place to start. Uh, you know, just saying that we're going to uh, do this for African-American males is not enough. You need the concentrated efforts. You need to be intentional. Um, and you have to put your energy and your resources into that. And so I think that's really where we need to be. If you're going to talk about it, you got to be about it. You know, uh, this is where the rubber meets the road. And Terrence, I suppose you, alongside all of the work that you have done and we've discussed and your work with Nakata, you are also involved in the Texas Academic Advising Network. And by being involved, I mean, you're the president of the uh, Texas Academic Advising Network. 
Can you talk to us a little bit about um, the the network? Um, it's maybe its relationship with Nakata and your role as president. Yes. Uh, so I'm no longer the president um, of Texan. I have uh, served diligently, but uh, our uh, Texan is a state uh, advising organization. Um, and many states, you know, have their own state advising organization. And so we do. Uh, we are a member of Nakata, and we do. Uh, a lot with Region 7, uh, especially since we're the largest state um, in that region. So uh, I got involved with Texan uh, because I started my uh, work with African-American males and advising um, in this organization. And I'm really thankful to the organization because it gave me the platform to be able to uh, gain uh, courage and confidence in what I was speaking and that people actually cared about what I cared about. Uh, But the great thing about it was that it also gave me a lot of experience because when I did the presentation the first time at Texas, it was awful. Uh, You know, only eight people showed up, which I'm very glad that only eight people showed up because I had lots of technology issues and maybe like first presenter woes. Um, And from that, I was like, oh no, never again would this happen to me. Uh, So I uh, improved and made drastic improvements. And then I ended up doing the same presentation at Region 7, um, which is where I, I won the best of Region. But because of that experience with Texan, I was able to improve uh, later. But the good thing uh, that I liked about it was that it gave me the opportunity to become a leader. And sometimes, and this is not being ugly or anything, but sometimes, you know, when you have a large organization, sometimes you can feel a little lost uh, and overwhelmed. And, you know, how do I fit in? How do I become a leader in such a very large organization? So sometimes those smaller organizations give you that platform to be a leader. Um, and so I started off as uh, the Nakata liaison, which put me in a place on the board. And then um, I ended up uh, becoming the president elect. Um, and in, the, in that opportunity uh, as president elect, I got to learn a lot from the president um, and learn a lot about the organization and how it can really help the, uh, the individuals that we have. But what I saw uh, from my end was that a lot of people did not uh, view the organization as uh, robust or as something that they want to be a part of. You know, they didn't see it at the same level as Nakata, which is understandable because, you know, it's a state organization. Um, So my uh, passion as being the president uh, of Texan was to increase our profile of uh, in the state and to really be seen as something uh, that is worth my time, worth my uh, my investment, um, and worth my uh, opportunities to get involved. So uh, I worked very hard with uh, trying to uh, reimagine who we were and what we looked like. At the time, we were more uh, focused on just an annual conference, and we had worked on some things of trying to expand what does our organization look like and what does it mean to be a member of our organization post the conference? Cause you know, when you go to a conference, you're really excited. You want to save the world. And then, you know, like two weeks later, you're back to normal. Um, so we wanted to keep that going. Uh, so we embedded a lot of new, uh, and revitalized a lot of new programs. So we did things like, uh, webinars. Um, we did a mentorship program, uh, we started a fellowship program where we are bringing in um, graduate students 
um, to hopefully bring them into the field. Um, we uh, started our journal, uh, our own journal uh, to start writing a little bit more to give people the platform and the confidence to be able to, you know, move on to Nakata and, and do uh, more in future writing. Um, we did other things like uh, uh, increase our conference uh, profile. We also did partnerships with the, the state uh, co coordinating board. So we did it with the Texas Higher Education Coordinating Board to have more concentrated efforts. We uh, did more. We have regions as well uh, because the state is just so large. Um, so we broke it down into regions. We had region events. Uh, we did drive-ins. Um, we did some other things. Uh, we did so many things. I, I, you know what? I don't even remember all the things we did because we did so much. But we were able to uh, really raise the profile. And I did my own, what I like to, I called it Texan tours. So I drove all over the state, baby. Y'all know that Texas is very large. So that was a lot of driving. But I drove all over the state and I went to other uh, advising, smaller advising organizations, uh, different institutions to promote the organization. And that really raised our profile. And so we increased our uh we were able to have the largest conference that we ever had. We had it in Sao Padre and we had it at three, uh, 300 and, um, I think 78, uh, people that attended, which was a, a big record for us, uh, at the time. And then the pandemic happened and we had all of these things planned out for the next couple of, uh, the next year with drive-ins and all these things. And then of course, you know, pump your brakes. And it was very devastating for us, but, me being who I am, you know, I just Google it. So I tried to figure out what can we do to accommodate. And so we were able to host uh, our, the first webinar, uh, the first online uh, conference, uh, you know, in advising period because no one had done it. And so we were able to uh, facilitate that. We did uh, two drive-ins uh, virtually um, and we did things like had DJs, you know, just did fun things. Uh, we used the apps, you know, to keep people engaged and involved and people really, really loved it. Um, and so then it led me to being the conference co-chair again. Uh, and we hosted another, our first uh, annual conference uh, online. And that was uh, phenomenal. We had almost 600 people in attendance. It was off the chain, you know. Uh, we had Angela Davis. We got to have uh, the commissioner of higher education present. We got to do uh, our DJs as we normally do. We got to feed people via Grubhub. You know, we got to do a lot of different things that was uh, very out of the box. You know, I'm an out of the box kind of guy. I always want to do something different. I always want to be innovative. And so uh, I'm just really thankful for Texan because it gave me the opportunity to be me um, and to be innovative and to think outside of the box. And that's not always available, you know, in certain spaces that you're in because, you know, we have a way that we do it and this is how we always do it. But I was able to challenge people and even bring people higher. And so I really appreciate that experience. There's been multiple meetings I've been in where someone has said, well, what does Texan do? And so I think there's definitely that that positive impact that has like spread globally, and which I think is perfect because this is going to be posted during the Global Advisor Week for Nakata. 
And I think a lot of what you've talked about, I think you've inspired people to maybe get more involved within their local organization or within NACADA. And I think a lot of things you mentioned about like Grubhub and things at the conferences, people who are planning future conferences are probably like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. Let me write that down. Yes, write it down, baby. That was a hit. People love the Grubhub. Uh, and it was just, it was awesome, you know, to to be able to supply things. And people were very impressed uh, because they didn't expect it. You know, of course, you know, one of my favorite things to do when I go to a conference is eat. Uh, so I did not want to have a conference where we there was no food present uh, that I didn't have to pay for it. Uh, so with that being said, um, you know, I got together with my team and we were just like, hey, how can we do, you know, certain things we gave out? We still gave out gifts, you know, um, and, you know, now that everybody went to electronic gift cards, that was awesome. So we did that. We played a lot of games. We played this thing called Meme Throwdown, where we we uh, presented a topic and you had to find a meme that represented the topic um and then people got to vote on it it was hilarious um and so it it just was awesome um again you know i i enjoy being there and being virtual you know allowed us to do things that we would not have ever been able to do we would not have been able to have angela davis um had we not done it virtually and i think uh for texan um Having someone like Angela Davis was a first for us, uh, not because of our profile, but because of the stance on social justice. Uh, and what I found is that sometimes we like to shy away from those things and, and advising uh, because we like to just kind of stay neutral uh, to things. And, you know, if people have presentations or whatnot, we, you know, we encourage those. But as an organization, um, what does that look like to uh, support social justice. And so that was challenging, um, you know, because not everybody agreed. Um, not everyone was okay with us taking a social justice stance. But um, at the end of the day, we are, we serve students and our students are very diverse and they come from very different backgrounds and we have to be prepared to serve these students. And so um, if that means that people got upset, uh, then that's good because maybe, uh, you know, it was, uh, a, a, an opportunity to challenge people, um, in their, in their current, um, beliefs and values. And so, um, that was a great opportunity, uh, for us and, um, the organization is going to continue to move forward, uh, in that direction. Um, uh, but, um, these were like just groundbreaking moments for us and, um, you know, if anybody wants to uh, build their organizations, I would encourage them because, you know, I've always been one, you know, take care of home, you know. And so for me, Texan was home um, and I wanted to build us, you know, because I knew that uh, people don't always have the opportunities to uh, be involved in Nakata as much as they would like, uh, you know, because of the different circumstances and situations. Um, so having Texan was a way for people to connect locally and even address a lot of the concerns that we have in Texas. And, you know, the conference came. Oh, I was so thankful. I was just praying. I was like, oh, my God, because it came right after the snowstorm, which people have uh, coined Snowvid. <laughs> I don't know where they came from, but they've termed it Snowvid. Um, and... Uh, 
I was thankful that that came right before it because I was like, oh my God, like this is going to be awful. Uh, but I think it was good and it was refreshing. And, you know, we have a bubbly personality in the organization. We love to uh, be a little bit casual and kind of just make people feel uh, happy. And so people felt happy. I mean, we were still, even the last day, we still had over 300 people on the call, which we had on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You know, Friday, people not trying to do much. So that was really encouraging to see. I think... Um... The, what also strikes me in terms of a lot of what you've said is I know that you're going to have had a, a conference proposal accepted for uh, don't cancel your event best practices for virtual event planning. I think we may have just gotten a sneak peek and I think listeners will definitely now want to attend given what you've just outlined. Now, um, Terrence, it would be remiss of us to, to let you go, given that it is the Global Advising Week special episode, given that you are a, are a leader in, uh, you know, the advising field. One of the other guests on this episode is Dr. Charlie Nuth, the Executive Director of, of NACADA. This will be, I suppose, his last um, Global Advising Week as Executive Director as uh, Charlie moves into his retirement just th- thinking on your reflecting on your own interactions with, with Charlie, any any good Charlie Nuts sto- stories, any uh, inspirational stories that you got from him or, or memories of him presenting? Um, so I never actually I think I did meet him in person uh, once, um, but I was always a little bit too shy to uh, want to go up to him. And not that he was an intimidating person, but I just, you know, it, he was like, oh, my God, this is Charlie Nutt, you know. Um, so I just never went up to him. But uh, he always was very joyful and I really appreciated him. He uh, came to Region 7 um, a few times uh, that I was in attendance and I just enjoy his passion. And for me, um, you know, people like Charlie, they are people that inspire me to be who I am. Um, and I take a little bit from, you know, people and people usually say like, oh, my God, you're such a dynamic speaker and, you know, presenter. And I I believe that when you put your whole self into something, you know, people receive the passion, you know, they feed off of that passion. And so they connect with you. And that was something that I, I took from Charlie, you know, as I'm like watching him and listening to him and listening to his passion, you know, I'm thinking to myself, this is the kind of speaker I want to be. You know, obviously I want to be myself and be who I am, but these are things that I want to glean uh from from him as a uh, as a speaker. And so uh, I'm really happy for him, you know, being in retirement. And I hope that he actually goes into retirement because, you know, people say they retired and they still doing stuff. Uh, but just really enjoy uh, just life. Uh, you, uh, He's really done the work and he's really laid foundations, you know, that are going to be here for generations to come. And so uh, I want to be just like him when I grew up. You know, I want to lay foundations uh, for generations. And generations has been something that I have uh, been taking hold of a lot more lately of legacy. You know, what am I leaving for others? You know, not just for the next 10 years, but the next 20 years, the next 30 years. Uh, and it really changes your perspective of how you behave and the things that you do and um, and what you care about. Um, and so, you know, I'm really thankful to Charlie. So go Charlie for uh retiring. Uh, We really appreciate you. I appreciate you. And um, I thank you for your inspiration to me uh, as I continue to try to inspire others. 
you know, and you talk about Charlie's passion, but I think there's your passion as well. And I think a lot of listeners, like even just listening, you know, talking to you right now, kind of getting inspired, you know, so thank you so much. And we appreciate you being on the podcast. And, and I feel like we, we got a lot more to talk about. And there'll be a part two at some point down the road. Yes. So if any listeners have any questions or they want to connect with you, what's the best way to reach you? Uh, yes, you can email me at tjm80 at txstate. That's spelled out S-T-A-T-E dot E-D-U. Um, you know, definitely email me. I'll email you back. I'm very responsive. I usually respond within 24 hours, uh, but I'm very quick. I love to respond because I don't like to make people wait. Uh and so uh, reach out to me. I would love to hear from you, um, you know, and I'm, again, just trying to continue to do things in my passion. I'm doing a, uh, a webinar next week on advising African-American males. Um, so I'm continuing to, to do these things. And like I said, uh, like you said in my bio, I am working on publication. So you will see this in the Cotter Journal, and I'm just speaking it because I believe in being positive and speaking into existence. So uh, you will see my article very soon um, on this. And so get ready for some good nuggets on um, some good advising strategies for working with African-American men. So be on the lookout for that. Absolutely. I've always grown up. Speak it, believe it. Yes, that's right. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Really interesting insights there from Terence on his PhD thesis, advising African-American males from the advisor's perspective, his time as president of Texan, some best practice approaches for virtual events. And I also enjoyed hearing about his study abroad experiences in Germany. Up next is Dr. Charlie Nutt from the Nakata Executive Office and known to many as a mentor, a colleague and a friend. We've had Dr. Nutt on various episodes of the podcast, and as much as we'll have Charlie on again in the future, this is actually probably the last time Charlie will be on Adventures in Advising as the Executive Director. So let's dive right in. All right, coming back to our podcast is Dr. Charlie Nutt, current Executive Director of Nakata, soon to be retired, years of making a difference in academic advising. Dr. Nutt is also one of the top supporters of our podcast. So Charlie, as always, welcome back to Adventures in Advising. Thank you so much. It's always a, a joy to see the two of you, but to also just be a part of this uh, podcast because uh, while I can see you, the other people can't, but it's great to see you. But it's such a great opportunity that y'all have provided this past year with the pandemic and everything that's occurred for people to continue to connect with each other, hear what other people are saying, kind of have that virtual hug Every time this has come out, and I just want to thank the two of you so much for the work you've done. Well, we want to thank you for your continued support and for joining us again. I can uh, safely say that whenever Charlie Nutt is on the podcast, it is both educational and entertaining. Charlie, we, we, I suppose a lot of times when we have guests on, we kind of begin by asking them about like their, their rooted in education. We, we talked to you about that previously, but you know, difficult as it is to believe there may be listeners who are who aren't so familiar with Charlie Nutt. And I want to give them a sense of, of you. So can you talk to us maybe a little bit just just in, about your passion for, for education? Because I, I, that is something that I think comes to life when you speak. 
Sounds great, Colin. Thank you so much. Um, you know, I, I said to you all the last time, I kind of feel like I'm in segments of my educational career. I started out teaching high school in 1977 to um, disadvantaged students, students who we would think of as, as uh, non-readers, uh, which was quite a challenge at 20 years old and teaching some students who had been in high school with me just three years earlier. Um, but I loved it. And then I taught in Atlanta for a while. And then I went to a private school, worked as admissions and fundraising, and then kind of moved into what I think was a really big part. And that was my first career at Coastal Georgia Community College. Um, it was my, my college. I graduated from there in 1974, 76. Um, so I knew everyone. It was like I was coming home again. But one of the things that really hit me was what is academic advising? Because when I talked about advising, or when I thought about advising, I thought of Betty Jo Strickland, who was my advisor when I was in school, um, who was the dean who hired me back in 1987 to go back to the college. I don't ever remember her telling me what courses to take. I don't ever remember her talking to me about degree audits. I, I remember going to her when I had a problem. I remember going to her when I thought, I don't know whether I could do this, whether I could make this scoop or make this climb. Um, and, and that's what advising was. Unfortunately, when I first started as a faculty advisor, they only trained me to do the transactional. So how do you how do you fill out back there the paper registration form? And the students would line up in the hall with, with huge calendars of what was being offered and we'd spend time working with them. And, and that was all I was trained on. And then after about a year, I really began to, to relax and realize, you know, as, as, as my friend and colleague Nancy King says, what we do is important, but it's not brain surgery. <laughs> In other words, I was not going to kill somebody if I happened to tell them the wrong course to take. We could figure that out. What really mattered was the relationship I was building with students. And that's when I found Akata and really learned what advising was and and. Um, just kind of changed that campus. I didn't change it, but the connection with Nakata changed it. And then I was lucky enough in 2002 to come to Kansas, to uh, Kansas State with executive offices, and I've had a great career here. So that's probably more than you wanted, Colin. Oh, that's that's what we want is we want to hear these stories. So as you've kind of demonstrated, like you've done a lot and you know your journey's kind of led you to where you are now. And advising has changed a lot over the years. And, and oh, as executive yeah. director, you've kind of been through a lot in terms of, you know, recessions going on in the world, uh, this pandemic now, most recently. So when you look back, what did academic advising for you look like when you first started in the profession? And where do you see it right now as you retire soon as the executive director? It was, it was total scheduling. It was course selection. It was helping students figure out which courses to take. At that time, we had a hard time getting students to even decide which course. You know, you know I need to take English 098, but do I want Mr. Nutt? Do I want Dr. Strickland? Do I want, you know, it, it was that type of transactional. But then I quickly learned really what it was as far as the relationship building. And so I think where academic advising has moved is twofold. I think, one, it's clearly seen as part of the teaching and learning mission of a campus. It is not a service. It may report to student services on some campuses, but it's still an academic endeavor. It's helping students to learn what they need to know to be successful. And then secondly, I think that we've learned how to really build a relationship with students and focus our, our, our 
attention on the student needs and what the students need out of academic advising. I think the past year is an example. You know, a month, a year ago today, I saw someone put something on Facebook today about the school closing down last year, about a year ago. And all the campuses, including y'all's, including K-State, were panicked. What do we do? How do we how do we take a faculty member who's never taught on a recording and translate it into that? How do we make all these changes? There was one constituency on every campus who stepped up to plate consistently, and that is academic advisors. Academic advisors are who really helped us get through this pandemic because students knew there was somebody who cared about them. They knew there was somebody who knew the knowledge, could give the information, but most importantly, they knew what it was that, that, that how to help that students get where they want to be and build that relationship. You know, it enabled us to do some, some crazy things, such as, you know, I'm looking at, at, at Carlos' video right now because I can see it. Um, and it's, he's got beautiful flowers and trees and stuff in the background. During this past year, we've, we've been able to go into our students' lives. We've been able to see them face-to-face. We've been able to say, oh, who did that painter? Is that your daughter? Or, tell me about that person. Um, or the kids would run through. Or a cat would go across the, the screen. But we got into their lives in ways that no one else did. And I think that was so important this past year to make that, to, to have that relationship building. And I think that we've got to clearly continue to communicate to our deans, to our provost, to our vice provost, to our chancellors, to our presidents, what advising actually did in this past year that enabled our students to continue to be successful and continue to be enrolled, to continue to be retained, and to continue to graduate. Yeah, I think that um, connection piece is so vital and, you know, the key across everything, students, advisors, all of our interactions. And Charlie, I'm interested because that is, I think, one of your many talents is you are a connector. And, uh, you know, like for you in terms of your your approach to that and, and in terms of relationship building. How, like as somebody who has been so successful in that for listeners, are there things like how do you approach it? Are there things we can learn from you? You know, my father um, died in 1990. One of the things that, that daddy was so well known for, he came from a small town in Georgia. Um, he was the last of 10 children. Um, when he was born, his um, oldest sister, who was in her 30s, looked at him and said, well, he's no bigger than a skeeter. So my daddy's nickname is a talent with Skeeter Nut. Um, and so um, daddy was a character. One of the things I watched him do so well in my life is connecting people and talking to people, learning who people were and learning what they needed and how to respond to that. So I think I got a lot of that from my dad uh, within that. I think as far as advisors, I think how we could continue to connect them in ways that they maybe didn't even think about a year ago. Um, through your podcast. And I have to go back to thanking the two of you because this has been something people have looked forward to. And every time you drop uh, a new a, a new group of, of podcasts, people immediately share it going around because they can expect it. That's That's been kind of the continuity that many of them have had. We haven't been able to go to conferences. We've had amazing, amazing virtual events. But we are people who like people. And so we love hugging and talking and getting together at, at conferences, 
we've missed that this year. And this podcast has been a, a been something that people could connect to and join with and work with. So I think that's part of it. I think you got to love students. You know, I, I've been here at K-State teaching the graduate program, but I still have a love for undergraduate students. This is not easy work, but it's work that if you care about students, you will find a way to make it happen. And you'll find a way to make those connections. And those connections may be no more than helping a student connect to a faculty member they're having trouble with or helping a student connect to a campus that they maybe are not sure they belong at, or just helping them figure out how to, to respond and work with you. What we teach students is more than just what courses to take, but we're teaching students how to build their own connections, how to build their own network of success. And I think that's, excuse me, I think that's what advising is all about, is building that, that network. Very soon, Charlie Nutt will be retiring and we have someone new that will be coming in as a new executive director, and that's Dr. Melinda Anderson. So I guess when you think of Dr. Melinda Anderson and what Melinda will bring to the executive office and to NACAD as a whole, what are your thoughts? And also, have you already given advice to Melinda when she starts as the new ED? Um, I think the very first thing, anybody who knows Melinda sees automatically is her passion. She has a passion for higher education. She has a passion for students. And... I think that's the, the key that I know she's coming to this job with. Uh, we're, I think, very fortunate. She's been a uh, member of the council. She's been the board of directors. She understands the structure. She understands all our strengths, but she also understands where we have issues we need to work on. And Melinda's going to come in with a lot of, of energy, a lot of, of passion. I'm ready to move forward. I think the two things I tell every person who comes to work here who is coming from a campus is you have to get used to not seeing students every day because you're used, to, you're, you're used to doing that. Um, she's also going to be teaching, so she'll be able to have that network. But it's still a little different when you come to an executive office within that. Beyond that, I just encourage her to keep that passion, to keep that motivation, to keep energizing others, because that's something I think Melinda brings to this, is just the ability to energize those around her. Yeah, and I think that, you know, that is one of the things that is really, I suppose, prominent in NACADA is inspiring others. And I think you've been a big part of that and you have inspired, you know, kind of spread that mission in many ways, because I'm, I'm thinking, you know, one of the um, many accolades that have come your way, um, deserved accolades, was uh, UCAT and LVASA coming together for the Charlie Nutt Award for International Collaboration in Advising. And that really is, is what you're speaking to. It's about, you know, that that collaboration uh, kind of across borders at times and, and inspiring others. For an, um, listeners who, who maybe aren't um, that, that familiar um, with, with the award, um, can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, when, when you heard about it and, uh, you know, what it means to, to you? Colin, it, it meant the world to me, to be totally honest. Um, Oscar and, and David wrote me one day and said, you have some time to do a, a telephone conversation? I thought, okay, what are these two up to? Well, it is. So I um, got a phone call and they presented to tell me about the award. And I was I was honored beyond. I can't even describe to you how honored I was. But I was I was mainly honored because it truly did bring together two associations that while connected with Nakata, they were advising gurus in their own countries and really looked at how do we begin to continue this global partnership? How do we continue to, to help? Um, advisors connect with others across the world. Um, 
I know Matt can speak to this on a column. You can until you've actually been at an international conference, you don't see the energy that's that's there. So I'm not sure everyone recognizes what that brings to us as an association, as a group of professionals to have that connection. I'll put a shameless plug in here. Most of us can't go because you can't travel that far. Remember the virtual international conference is virtual this year. So I hope a lot of folks who have never been able to travel will still come to the virtual experience because it'll be the same type of energy. Uh, but when they told me that, it was really talking about how you connect across the board. And Gavin has done some amazing work with advisors in Australia, in, in UCAT, in, in lots of ways. It was just a great way to just show someone who wasn't doing it for the accolades, wasn't doing it because he knew it would look good on a resume. He was connecting people because he cared. And that's what advice is all about. So it was, it was a great honor. Great honor. And speaking of conferences, what's, you know, we are hopefully back at conferences later this year or into next year as budgets get, you know, hopefully get better at institutions as travel opens back up. I know for the CSU, there's been a recent memo about regarding travel coming up soon after July. But people probably want to know, will we still see Charlie at conferences? Will we see Charlie in webinars? Can we still talk to Charlie after he retires? Everyone can always talk to me. Um, I won't talk about business. I'll talk about life and how you do it uh, within that. Um, about one of the things I really want to do is, is give Melinda a clean slate. Um, I keep saying that I'm going to get sticky notes for every office staff member so that for the next year, whenever something happens that's wrong, the sticky note's going to say that blank, blank, Charlie Nutt did this. And she could just use those all the time. I don't know why Charlie did it. You know, within that. So, so I can't answer that, Matt. Um, I will always be watching. I think one of the things we know is that even when we are back live, we're going to need to keep our virtual component. We've learned too much about it this year and see the success of it. So I'll still be around. I might not see you in person, but I'll still be around. Well, that that is uh, good to hear because the the energy that uh, Charlie brings, and I think that look what you what you're saying. I know it's I know it's a, a tongue in cheek in terms of the sticky notes, but it is a testament to to your leadership that you're willing to to be the the you know put it on me. Charlie, look, one of our taglines for the podcast is sharing stories, and you are a phenomenal storyteller. And I'm sure, you know, as the, the year has gone by and, and you've begun to reflect on, um, you know, your 43 years, I believe, in, in education, just can, you know, so, some of the memories, I, I know, you, you know, the, so some of them, um, you, you won't be able to, to share all of them, but just interested in hearing, you know, some of your favorite memories from your time in uh, the world of, of education, be that in relation to advising, be that in relation to, to travel, or just in, in relation to meeting with people at conferences. You know, Kyle, the difficult part of what you just asked me is because I know you too so well, that anytime you've asked for a story, I've told you something. And so I'm not sure what I've told you, what I haven't told you. So I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of repeating myself. I think the biggest piece has been just to go back and look over my career, but particularly in Dakota, to go back and look at my friends and colleagues and, and compatriots I've worked with and moved forward. Um, and it just reflect, you know, everybody knows Virginia Gordon. Everybody knows she was the, the really the person that started talking about exploratory students and, and all that, that we did. And she was an amazing president. She was the first uh, woman president of Nakata and was just doing great work. But she was such an 
such an accolade. She was everybody in the world knew Virginia. We studied Virginia. We we read about Virginia. And the first time I met her, I was scared to death of her because I thought this is Virginia Gordon. I, I can't talk to Virginia Gordon. And so we went through a whole summer history. I never said a word to her. I said, hi, Dr. Dr. Gordon. I just kept moving because she just intimidated the hell out of me. So the second year we were somebody's trip together, we were in Provo, Utah, um, and we were looking for some place to, to open that was open to, to serve the faculty for dinner. And and so we're in a car, I'm driving, um, former executive director Bobby Flaherty's beside me, and then Virginia's in the back seat. And once again, I've said, hi, Dr. Gordon, nice to meet Dr. Gordon, and just drove. Well, we're driving through the mountains of Utah, and it's just gorgeous. All of a sudden, I thought, what am I hearing? It was yodeling for the back seat. Virginia Gordon was yodeling um, in the back seat, and I was. It was, it was wonderful because it really did show that no matter how many times you read someone's name or how many times you see their their literature or the, what they've written, we're all in it because we love what we do. And here was a lady who was probably already in her seventies, and she's yodeling in the back seat. The next day, I, I took a my infamous balloon ride, which is another whole story. I'm a hot air balloon. I'm Dana Zahor. I can tell you that story one day. Um, but Dana and I took this hot air balloon, and I was petrified. I'm petrified of heights. It was mis- it, it was gorgeous, but it was miserable. Well, I didn't know that the next flight that went up after that was another boat, another Nakata group, and Virginia Gordon was in it. So Virginia, they get her a little ladder. She climbs into the booth and she said, I'm going to be brave. And the guy said, you can't be any worse than that guy. We had a minute ago. He was to the floor crying. And Virginia went, was that Charlie Nutt? And he said, yeah, that's him, that Nutt guy. Um, and so I just think it's those relationships, those friendships that make such a difference. And I think that's why Nakata is not a typical higher education association. It's about family. It's about connections. It's about building a relationship with, with each other, with our students and hopefully making Nakata a better association through those relationships. Absolutely. And speaking of Nakata, I mean, Nakata has done so much and helped so many people over the years and has revamped itself and, and kept has kept updating in terms of what needs to be done, depending on what's happening in the world. And so I guess for members that might be on the fence of, you know, budgets and you know do i renew my membership or you have new advisors that are finding out about nakata and again budget wise where do i spend my money can any advice you have for new advisors or current members um regarding nakata and what it can still do for the profession and for them absolutely that it truly is has been the most important relationship for me as a faculty member and as an advisor. It connected me with people. It helped me learn from people. It helped me see the literature. It helped me build this together. So regardless of whether I can come to a meeting or not, you still need access to that. You still need podcasts like this. And and there's a podcast this afternoon that Gavin Farber's put together once again. Uh, A year later, what did we learn? Uh, Those are types of things that all advisors need to hear. They need to have it, have access to. Being an Nakata member brings that to you. It brings that relationship. It brings that partnership that you need to be successful. And so during this time, I would just encourage everyone to just consider that Nakata is more than just a meeting. It's more than just a conference. It's a full association. 
that can help you in all sorts of ways so it doesn't matter whether you can go to Cincinnati or whether you want to really join us in Portland in 2022 I'm going to put a little plug out I'm so excited for Matt and his ELP mentor Leah together are going to co-chair our Portland conference so you need to come and see Matt and Leah in 2022 but regardless of whether you come to an event or not what you get from the card in all sorts of ways is something you need as a professional. Uh, I think given the considerable talents of both Matt and Leah with their powers combined, that will be one not uh, to miss. Charlie, I, I suppose I, I'm wondering, you know, I, I'm thinking if I was in your shoes and say I was coming up on retirement, I think my favorite thing would be not to have to set an alarm clock for the for the mornings, um, not to wake up to an alarm would be joyous. I'm wondering for you, is there anything on on your bucket list or anything that in particular that, that you might be uh, looking forward to uh, when uh, when you do get to, to step into the next chapter? I had a tough conversation with Dean Mercer the other day. And she said, now, what are you going to do? And I went, you know, Dan, I probably ought to start thinking about that because I haven't really decided what I'm going to do. So I, I love hearing from people, but I will be honest, Colm, it would be kind of nice to know I don't have to check my email every minute um, and, and check my email every every hour and respond. I, I can't say I won't miss that um, within those pieces. Or if you're in Georgia, maybe you're, you're, you're walking the beach. Absolutely. And y'all are welcome to come walk it someday with me. I'd love for the two of you to come visit Georgia. Will do. And so I read these stories when you att- when you were our keynote for one of our CSU webinars recently. And I thought it would be nice to, to read these again for the larger audience as well. So we had asked a few people, tell us something about Charlie or Charlie's story or what you think of Charlie, you know, as as he's retiring. And so you know, this is this could be scary here. <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> well, I think these are all gonna be good. These are all be nice. So you mentioned Leah, so Leah Paganibon from University of Washington. So she had said he's a number one supporter of and advocate for academic advising, and his passion and work in higher ed has impacted numerous advisors throughout the years. And honestly, I think anyone listening will say that is absolutely one hundred percent true. And your your good buddy Casey, Casey Self from Arizona State was also a previous uh, keynote speaker at our California Collaborative Conference and a previous podcast guest. He said, Charlie's one of my best friends whom I would have never met without Nakata. And everyone knows he is a special leader and speaker, and he has done wonderful things for the advising community. And I am fortunate to know what it is like to have him as a best friend for life. And again, I think agree for many of us, you know, you're, you're not just a colleague or a popular mentor, but you're a true friend. And Amanda Roberts-Mather from Texas A&M at Qatar, who will be a future podcast guest, said, Charlie is Nakata. His energy and passion were obvious and really excited me to be part of the profession. And I know I am not the only one who has felt it, who has walked away from even a quick hello, not feeling renewed. And the first time it dawned on me that Charlie Nutt knew who I was, I felt pretty darn special. And I think many of us share that same feeling. So I guess for, I guess... Whether it's an advisor, uh, advising professional, faculty, Nakata member, anything you w- you want to say, you know, this is this is your platform that you want to say to to advisors as they are going in, ending one school year, going to be starting a, a new one, and who knows what that's going to be like <laughs> coming up. Um, you know, man, I think I think Casey kind of summed it up really well, and that is the friends that I've learned and the, the people. You know, I think back to meeting Colin for the first time. 
and he walked into the building in Dublin where we were putting packets together. And I'm sitting on the floor surrounded by boxes. And he said, can I do something? I said, yes, and I'll start putting these together. He had no idea who I was. He had no idea I had a name. We just sat there, talked for what, an hour and a half, Carla, while we stepped packages for that conference? Um, it's that type of connection. It's type of bonding and friendship that I will always remember, just always value, just having the opportunity to have you all in my lives. Charlie, I keep mining you for information because you are just, you know, the, 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 a rich resource. And we, we did talk to, to, to Melinda about, I suppose, her approach to, to leadership. And, and she has fantastic insights. And, and I, I'm really excited about her coming into it. But I, I suppose also interested in, in your, like you heard the, the, the words that, that Matt read from people there, like you are seen as such a, um, an inspiration. In terms of your own outlook on, on leadership and, and your own approach, just um, for people who, you know, maybe t taking a step up in their careers, any words of advice that, that you would offer in terms of that, um, especially where they're moving into a super, like they're going to be supervising staff maybe? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think the first thing you got to do is hire. You have to hire really good people. Uh, but once you hire really good people, you get out of their way and let them do the work. And so we've had amazing regional conferences this year, combining, you know, all the regions that came together to do those five conferences. You know, the, the EO staff and the, the, the region group, they put all that together. And I hope, I don't know, you might have to talk to Ben. Uh, I hope that Ben and, and, and Deb and Michelle and everyone here knew that, no, that might not be what I would have done, but the outcome has been amazing. And so you've got to step out of it and let people learn. They're going to make mistakes sometimes or maybe won't do it the, the way you would have done it. Or it may even have just quite frankly been a flop in some ways. They've got to be able to learn from that. But I think as a supervisor, you have to trust people and recognize that if you needed to do it, then by God, just do it. But if not, stay off the people's back. Because here's the outcome you want to see happen. This is what you want to see occur. I've been here since 2002. There has never, ever been an event, a publication, a resource, a virtual opportunity, anything that I'm ashamed of. And that's because we have amazing volunteers and we have amazing EO staff. And I think the biggest point is I've just backed out of the way and said, make this happen. Put your own, put your own ideas into it. Put your own thoughts into it. Work with each other. We want to have virtual conferences next spring figured out. And they did amazing work. So I think it's trusting the people you hire, hiring the best people. And then just quite frankly, backing away and saying, what do you need? You need more money here. You need more man hour here. You need additional whatever you need. Let me give you what you need to be successful. And what I've learned so far is very few people make you feel ashamed of anything they've done because they believe in it because it's their work. So I think it's trusting our advisors that they're going to do a good job. They'll learn how to read better. You know, they'll learn how to use navigate. They'll learn those things. What they need to know is how to build a relationship. And one of the things you can learn in Akata is how to build that relationship with each other that you can then take into the advising relationship. So I think it's supervising people. It's all about trusting them. Once again, they may not have done it the way I wanted it done or the way I would have thought to do it, 
but the outcome was amazing institutes was an amazing annual conference last year amazing regional conferences i'm so proud of them um but i can also say i wasn't in the middle of it saying do this do that do the other because i trusted people and i think that's a major thing you have to do is trust yourself trust the advisors this is my job is not a job quite frankly i believe this is just me that that ego has a place in because i just don't think that's what we're here for we're here about working with advisors we're here about connecting them and so when you when people say what you just said about from, from casey and leon and those folks they honor me they make me so proud of those I have a real good colleague that keeps saying, now what's going to be your legacy when you retire? And, and my legacy are those things that you just read, because that's what it's all about. You know, Melinda is going to do great work. And, and to be honest, what I hope will happen by this time next year is people will be saying, well, Charlie who? Who is Charlie? Because it needs to go and be functional under a new person and she will do amazing work. It's like we say with trust and, and employees, it's like, well, you hired them for a reason to do their job, so let them do it. Absolutely. No one likes to be back and managed. I had a I had a president one time who was the the pro at micromanaging, but would get furious if the chancellor came down on her. And we would say, uh, can you twist that around a little bit, see how we feel? Um never did sink in, but um whether that because you gotta trust people. Which means you got to hire well, you got to give them professional development, you've got to support them, you've got to nurture them, you've got to have conversations with them, but you shouldn't be guiding everything they do, or it's not their job. Absolutely. And as we get to the end now, I think with this podcast episode, I hope everyone that listens fully through this episode, you know, got a lot out of it, and especially now from this the book and interview with, with you, Charlie. And you know, we're so thankful for your support of lateness do this podcast and and continuing to do this podcast and its association with Nakata. And you've given us all the tools we need to continue doing the work that needs to be done and to continue to improve academic advising for years to come. But we also know you'll still be around and we'll continue to check up on us from time to time. So in, ter- in the words of Golden Girls, thank you for being a friend. <laughs> thank you both. It's been a joy to work with y'all. Thank you again to our guests, Dr. Melinda Anderson, Dr. Terrence McLean, and Dr. Charlie Nutt. If you don't already, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a comment. Also, find us on social media. That's Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Advising Podcast. And now on YouTube under Adventures in Advising. And also fill out that quick survey for a chance to win one of three Adventures in Advising sharing stories t-shirts. And until next time, keep advising. Don't want a complication, 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 complication.